Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest today is Robert Svoboda. Robert is the first white member of Kenya's Pokot tribe, and the first non-Indian ever to graduate from a college of Ayurveda and be licensed to practice Ayurveda in India, where he lived for more than a decade. During and after his formal Ayurvedic training, he was tutored in Ayurveda, Yoga, Jyotish, Tantra, and other forms of classical Indian lore by his mentor, the Aghori Vimalananda. For a decade, he was involved with thoroughbred horses as Vimalananda's authorized racing agent. The author of more than a dozen books since 1985, he divides his time between India and other lands. And uh, I'll be listing his books on my website. Uh, but welcome, Robert. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Robert is out in uh, L.A. and just experienced an earthquake last night, so his, his world uh, rocked a bit. We were just talking about that. We're going to be talking mostly about Kundalini today, but there are a couple of points in your intro here that you know people might have questions about. Firstly, the point about racehorses. What was that all about? Well, Vimalananda, my mentor, was a native of uh, Bombay, Mumbai, mm -hmm. and uh, his family had been there for 15 generations. They were, they were quite prominent until uh, the immediate previous generation to him. Um, but he was, uh, he was a very versatile man. He had studied many things, Eastern and Western alike, and he was very familiar with animals as well as plants and minerals and so on, and he was very fond of horses. He enjoyed betting on his horses, but even more than that, he enjoyed looking at the possibilities in a, in a colt or a filly and seeing how he could, with appropriate training, bring out those possibilities. Mm -hmm. He was not a trainer himself, he had to work with other trainers, but he, had a, he exerted a strong influence on how they, how they worked with the horse and we would use Ayurvedic or homeopathic medicines to assist um, uh, you know, getting, getting the horses and the mares into, into, into shape where they could um, do what they're supposed to do at the racetrack, which is run and win. <laughs> huh, interesting. I value that time tremendously, not because I made a lot of money. I never bet. I have never bet on a horse race. And even if I am in Las Vegas, I will put $1 into a slot machine just symbolically. <laughs> but learning about horses, I learned a tremendous amount about, and I love horses, and I've fortunately have been around them a lot and to get a chance to ride periodically. I was out galloping in Costa Rica just last month. Mm. But even more learning about the race course for me at least and for him as well I think was a microcosm of the, the entire gamut of human culture. You have the virtuous people and the non-virtuous people and you have the people who are not only interested in horses for winning, but because, uh, but interested in horses as horses and wanting to treat them properly, and the ones who didn't care about that at all and, and treated them very cruelly, and the ones who made money and held on to it, who were almost nobody, and the ones who made money and lost it, who were sizable, and the ones who lost it only, and that was the largest number, of course. It, it was a, a valuable part of my education. Interesting. My wife's father was a gambler, and she spent a lot of time at the racetrack when she was young and also loves horses, but anyway, that's kind of incidental. You mentioned uh, in one of your YouTube videos that I listened to that your mentor was a um, connoisseur of whiskey and enjoyed drinking whiskey somewhat. 
As the son of an alcoholic and someone who's been on the spiritual path for 45 years, it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around that. I, I don't reject it, but it's hard for me to understand why someone who is quote-unquote enlightened or in a higher state or something would find that whiskey could in any way enhance his experience. I should think it would almost invariably dull the mind. It's considered tamasic and so on. So maybe you could riff on that just a little bit before we get into Kundalini. Well, and I'm speaking here about his opinion. His opinion was that many of the things that are written in the Vedas are true, but they are not necessarily true in exactly the way that they're written there. Because, of course, writing about something that is not directly part of the physical world and trying to use ordinary human language is not an easy thing to do. So when, for example, um, the, Veda, the Vedas would talk about Soma and the uplifting effect of Soma and how it could take you into the astral world and how it could put you into a place where you would be able to commune with reality much more directly. He was very much of the opinion that the Soma that the Vedic Rishis were taking was something that we will never be able to replicate ourselves as far as that substance is concerned. But as far as the effect is concerned, that is something that it is possible to replicate provided that you as an individual understand how your organism works, how your physiology works, and you find what is the soma that works for you. The thing that does uplift you, the thing that does send you into the astral world, the thing that does allow you to communicate not only with gods and goddesses and so on, but with the supreme reality more easily. And whiskey did that for him? Whiskey did that for him. <laughs> wow. It doesn't do that for me, but it, other things work better for me. But for him, it worked very well. And on dozens of occasions, I would be sitting there pouring him whiskey, not a lot at a time, just a little bit. And he would be sipping on it. And as he sipped, his awareness would become more open. His communication would become more refined and more sophisticated and the breadth and depth of his vision would perceptibly become augmented. And of course, one of the reasons why for him and for many people that uh, one might choose to employ a substance for facilitating this is suppose you were living as he did in Bombay. I know that people nowadays call it Mumbai, but I was there when it was in Hindi and English, it was always Bombay, and in Marathi and Gujarati, it was always Mumbai. So my Marathi and Gujarati are no good, but if I tried to speak them, I would always say Mumbai because that's how it fit in those languages. And in Hindi, I would always say Bombay. My Hindi is much better than Marathi or Gujarati. Bombay is a very difficult place to live. I mean, yes, it's a city of what's now about 20 million people, but even before that, he used to call it Moha Mayi Nagari, the city that is completely filled with delusion. And you can really tell that if you spend any time there that there's something about it, first of all, that makes everybody want to make money. Even the people who have no money are busy making money. So other places people may die of hunger, but not in Bombay. There's always money, there's always food. There's no place to sleep for many people. And that's why hundreds of thousands of people sleep on the street, which is not a problem except in the worst parts of the monsoon. And 
a big part of his philosophy was the concept of a big Sanskrit word, Rnanubandana. Rna means debt, D-E-B-T, debt. And in this context, karmic debt, things that you owe to yourself and to other people and to other animal and to animals and to places and to your family and to your teachers and anubandana banda means like kamarbund it means a thing that binds you down so you're bound down by these karmic obligations these these karmic accounts that have to be settled and of course things can only be settled at certain times so sometimes you have to bide quite a bit of time waiting for the opportunity to settle a certain debt. And while you're biding your time, it's very easy if you were stuck in a place, any kind of big modern city that's full of human beings, because he had to interact with people in Bombay and he had to interact them with them in a way that is meaningful. I mean, you know, Bombay is such a complicated place. It was very useful for him to be able to do that and then employ a substance that could send him back into the place where he normally existed and where he preferred to exist and that allowed him to provide to obtain the perspective that he required in order to be able to continue living in a place where he felt like he needed to live in order to deal with those karmic obligations. Interesting. In, in a piece that you sent me about Kundalini, uh, which we'll be talking about in some detail, you talked about the tendency to individuate to, for a hamkara to become more calcified egoism and uh, you're, you're referred to that as maya shakti and then you you said that the, the flip side of that the reverse is chit shakti where the the force turns towards the spiritual and um, i wonder you know if somewhat possibly the appeal of alcohol is that it relaxes the rigidity of the ego and, and uh, you know, in some cases allows people to sort of taste a, a more ego-free, uh, unrestricted space, which is uh, obviously in the long run for many, most people counterproductive because it damages the, 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 the brain and, and results in greater and greater bondage. But maybe that's why people find it alluring when, uh, and maybe in more homeopathic doses, it has that effect without deleterious influence. Uh, yes, I certainly think that's part of it. Um, and uh, in his case, it was uh, another reason why he employed alcohol as a substance is because he was a longtime worshiper of Tara, who is one of the 10 Mahavidyas, one of the 10 great embodiments of wisdom shaktis from which the universe is generated in which the universe remains and into which the universe will be resolved smashan tara the tara of the cremation ground is very similar to kali both in iconographically and in the sense that she is fond of blood and of alcohol and so by drinking he was also not drinking himself, but in addition to drinking himself in the context of his own personality, he was drinking that as an offering to that goddess. Uh, my friend Dr. Fred Smith, who we spoke about earlier, uh, wrote a 700-page book called The Self-Possessed. And it's all about the fact that even though in India and nowadays in other countries people believe Indian religion, and I'm deliberately not using the word 
Hindu because, as Vimalananda pointed out, the word Hindu is not an Indian word. It's a Persian word because the Persians don't use, the ancient Persians didn't use S, they used H. So it's a corruption of the word Sindhu, which is the Sanskrit name for the river Indus. And so anybody who lived in the place where the Indus flowed, which they called Hindustan, they called Hindus. We could just as easily have been called Sindhus if they had been able to, if they used S. So I don't use the word Hindu because, as he pointed out, Hindu is not an Indian word. It's a word that is employed by the Persians who sent a bunch of conquerors over here. And why employ a word that was imposed on you by your previous masters? You know, right. you don't have to. The, um, well, I won't say majority, but a large part of Indian religion has always involved being possessed. And that means allowing personalities other than your personality to enter you and take you over temporarily. And as Fred has found during the extensive research he did for his book, you can find mentions of possession everywhere, including in the Vedas. You know, this is not the sort of thing that the Victorian Englishman wanted to hear about, because uh, that's something very non-Victorian about being taken over and dancing wildly and losing the awareness of who you are as the Victorian gentleman or the embodiment of the Victorian lady. So uh, that was deliberately downplayed back at a time when, in fact, the English had a very strong influence on what they were, what they were thinking of as being worthy and valuable in Indian culture and what they thought of as being secondary and, and less valuable and sometimes dirty and corrupted and polluted and that possession and tantra in general would come under that second rubric. So, Often Vimalananda would be would permit himself to be taken over by a goddess or by a deity or by a dead saint or force of nature, and then he would be in a position to directly offer something through his own body to that personality that had taken him over. And of course, if you go to India, you will see, you have to look, but you can see there are, like in the Himalaya and Gardawal and uh, uh, Himachal, there are still oracles that suppose you need uh, advice about something. You go to the temple and there's the deity and the deity has an oracle and you request the oracle to uh, give you some advice. And there's a, a method, a different method depends on where you are and the oracle will give you some advice. And in Kerala, they have, for example, what they call tayam, which are specific rituals in which low caste people get possessed at the behest of high caste people. But for the time that they're possessed, the low caste people are embodied as gods and goddesses and they're being worshiped by the high caste people. Interesting. And in any state of India, you can find this sort of possession ritual and worship. And it is something that is very much part of Again, I can't say the majority, but a large plurality of the population of what they normally do and what they normally believe. But you don't hear about it because nowadays it's regarded as being, well, nowadays, not very Vedantic. 
What you've just said in the last few minutes raises a number of interesting points, and we're still going to spend the majority of this conversation talking about Kundalini, but it's fun to kind of explore a few of these things that are just coming up well, spontaneously. This will probably all relates to Kundalini anyway, right? All relates to Kundalini. Okay, great. Well, a couple of questions that arose in my mind as you were speaking. One was, I have heard instances, and you're probably much more familiar with this than I am, of people using this whole consuming various substances and doing various things in the name of Tantra, which kind of bastardize the whole thing, cheapen it. Uh, it becomes a form of hedonism, you know, without any real spiritual significance. And then just to, to bring out the other point, you can respond to them both about possession. Obviously, this is something which is in most ancient cultures and even modern. We have all kinds of channelers these days, and there was Edgar Cayce, and, and there are the ayahuasca people. And there, there's all sorts of instances where people are connecting with and perhaps uh, allowing some entity of some sort to uh, come through them and provide wisdom. And of course, there's the dark side of that too, where a lot of times you don't know who you're inviting. You know, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, there's been all kinds of you know, devil worship and all kinds of strange stuff that muddies the reputation of this sort of thing. Absolutely. And for example, I have spent quite a bit of time in Kashi or Banaras or Varanasi. Mm -hmm. And you see all kinds of people coming there claiming that they are, you know, this wonderful sadhu and that wonderful person and so on. And they're smoking chillums left and right and so on. And as Vimalananda pointed out, give somebody a chillum or a bottle of whiskey or something. And within a few minutes, you're going to find out exactly what is really going on with them. Mm. And so it's, I remember going to visiting Tarapit, which is in West Bengal and is the chief center of Tata worship in India. I mean, this was probably 20 years ago and it, and it still is, I think, pretty much out in the middle of nowhere. And there was a very famous saint from uh, about 150 years ago, same time as Ramakrishna, whose name was Bama Kepa. And he lived in that smashan, that cremation ground for a while. He built a hut called the Kopurdi Ki Jopurdi, which means the skull hut. So in the walls of the hut, there were probably dozens of skulls that are, you know, making up the hut. And that still has quite a nice vibe to it. And so does the cremation ground itself. But at least when I was there, there were three or four or five so-called tantrics doing nothing but drinking alcohol and uh, cheap alcohol at that and, and doing what people normally do when they drink alcohol, which is talking loudly, arguing, thinking about getting into a fight, becoming really effusive, and then finally lying down and snoring and trying to uh, sleep it all off. Yeah. So that was extremely um, annoying. I mean, I got over being disappointed by things like that a long time ago because there's so many charlatans in India and I've seen, I've met so many of them. But just, just the very fact that here you have not only a fine place where you could sit down and actually spend some time being aware of the fact that whether you like it or not, there's a good chance or not okay not a good chance but there's the possibility that just as happened last night an earthquake a tornado a lightning bolt a an eagle carrying a turtle might, <laughs> you know something might fall on your head and that will be the end of you so here is your opportunity to remind yourself of the fact that in the world uh, in which you and i are living 
mortality is everywhere. Mortality, in fact, can creep up upon you and take you away at any moment. Yeah. But instead of that, you get into a pattern, as these guys did, and the pattern is you get up and you convince yourself that, yes, I, you know, I'm really, I'm a big tantric, I'm, I'm doing this, I can, and I'm going to now do this, and then all you're doing is you're, you're, you've created a pattern that is not a very uh, efficient or effective or, or, or harmonious pattern, and then you're just reinforcing that pattern, and especially with the case of alcohol, it's very easy and it happens, I think, the vast majority of times. People attract to them. You know, there's a good reason why alcohol not so common nowadays, but it used to be called spirits. And you're attracting to yourself disembodied things that very much like the alcohol. And it's not very long because before those things are taking you over. And it doesn't take that long before pretty soon your, your own personality has lost a large amount of what would permit it to exist independently on its own and now it's dependent on being propped up by all these other influences and then pretty soon there you are yeah it's interesting in the in the thing i read that you sent me you, you said uh well, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but you, you, we were talking about spiritual crisis being mistaken for insanity. And you were saying that sudden kundalini awakening can short out the nervous system and blow a hole in the person's aura. And that the aura's job is to insulate us psychically from one another and from disembodied influences. I think that might be something that would be useful for people to understand more clearly, if only to understand you know, you hear about auras all the time, people want to see them, and some people say they see them, but, you know, what is their actual function? And this whole notion of um, disembodied entities might seem esoteric to some people, uh, and fanciful or mythological or whatever, but in my opinion, these entities very much do exist, and um, I've had a few little experiences of them myself, but it's natural to have a, a shield, or, you know, like in Star Wars, there, there needs to be some sort of protective shield and that can perhaps prevent many people who are mentally disturbed or even cr criminally insane have lost that shield and are just tools of, of some darker forces. That happens quite often and of course sometimes it's even more complicated than that. Sometimes they become, they become tools of forces that are not so dark but at the same time, there are tools of forces that are dark, and sometimes those things that part of the time, occasionally they may be actually channeling something that is positive and beneficial, and sometimes they may be channeling something that is very not positive, but is pretending to be something that is positive. Mm. Like uh, the good angel, bad angel thing on the shoulder, you know, that we always... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. There's no reason why simply because you're open to the one that you're not going to be open to the other. You are going to be open to both of them. And I think that it, one thing that is useful to remember is that, you know, usually people, when they think about possession, they're thinking about disembodied human beings or demons or, you know, Lucifer sitting somewhere and, and laughing maniacally and sending out all kinds of, you know, bizarrely caparisoned uh, items with Hieronymus Bosch-like appearances. But you can also get possessed by anger. You can get possessed by lust. You can get possessed by any emotion. You can get possessed by ancestors. And you don't have to think of your ancestors as still existing to be able to realize that if you're, you're getting genes 
from your ancestors. And nowadays, that thank God, people have finally discovered epigenetics. It's not just the genes, it's the pattern of which genes are going to turn on and turn off that can be passed down sometimes three or four generations. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who, let's say, is an alcoholic, we know that there is a type of alcoholism that is often passed down from father to son. So there is a definite kind of, and people in the past, maybe they were thinking, oh, we can find a gene or even a few genes that would do that. But it's not so much the genes themselves, probably, as it is the pattern of which genes are turned on and which genes are turned off and the circumstances under which a gene might be turned on or turned off in the context of this bigger pattern. So you can be influenced by ancestors that way. You can be influenced by mind viruses. Communism is something that took over, fascism took over the minds of large numbers of people. Nazism. Capitalism, mm. Nazism. Capitalism has taken over the minds of tens of millions of people. Mm. Consumerism has taken over the minds of hundreds of millions of people. I found something very interesting. You know, I like to keep up with everything because I have to deal with all kinds of different people. I have to deal with my relatives, a majority of whom live in rural Texas and like to go deer hunting. So uh, I personally don't like to go deer hunting, but we somehow or another find some shared location to communicate with at. My sister likes sports. I like sports. I go with her occasionally to the baseball game or something. And we watch some, we've been watching part of some of the NCAA tournament here in California. The two boys here both play basketball. At the you know, round of 64, there was the St. Louis University. The St. Louis University is a Jesuit university. Their mascot is the Billiken, B-I-L-L-I-K-E-N, the Billiken. So I thought, what in the world could a Billiken be? So I went to my great guru, my Mahaguru, which is Google, and even starts with a G. And I looked up Billiken, and you won't believe it, but the Billiken was an image that came in a dream to a woman in 1908 in the United States and must not be confirmed with, confused with the Cupid doll, which appeared is not that far off, but appeared the next year. And the Billiken looks kind of like, you can find it on Google, a little troll with kind of unusual ears and unusual little feet. And in 1908, for reasons best known to the supreme reality, uh, somebody in Japan got very interested in this Billiken and installed an image of it in a temple in Yokohama. So it went from being a, a, a dream in the mind of a woman in the United States to becoming a deity in Japan within the space of just a few months. <laughs> and the mascot, which is almost kind of sort of like a deity, the mascot of a Jesuit university in the United States. Funny. How do you spell it in case somebody wants to look it up? B-I-L-L-I-K-E-N. Okay. It's interesting what you were just saying about forces taking over collective mentality, collective consciousness, consumerism, Nazism, all those different things. And also there's something in the Bible about the, the sins of the father visited upon the sons or some such thing. That, Up to the seventh generation. Yeah, yeah. And, this, and that seventh generation part is, is interesting to me because of the race course. Because, you know, when you're at the race course, you spend a lot of time looking at the stud book. You know, all the race horses are derived from three foundation sires, the Darley Arabian, the Byerly Turk, and the Godolphin Arabian. 
And 90% of all racehorses today are descended from Eclipse, a horse who was foaled on an Eclipse and never lost a race. The particularly interesting thing about this is suppose you have a thoroughbred and you mate it with a non-thoroughbred. Then you have to ask yourselves, how long is it going to be before it becomes a thoroughbred? And it turns out that that will be the eighth generation because mm -hmm. by the eighth generation, that's the time that you now have less than 1% of the blood of the, the non-thoroughbred that you mated with in the first place. Mm. So when they were talking about the seventh generation, it was not just, I mean, it was symbolic, but it was also the point is that if you really wanted to get rid of that genetic influence, it's going to take you seven generations to do it just from the perspective of getting that genetic material diluted sufficiently. And we think of genetic material, of course, as being physical, but um, perhaps you and I would agree that the genetics are just the physical representation of an even subtler realm. And for, for instance, in terms of reincarnation, if you reincarnate and you, you bring in certain qualities from a previous life, obviously there's no way that physically your DNA could be carried from one life to the next, but there's some subtler vehicle which carries along and then manifests a physical structure, a physical DNA appropriate to its tendencies and, and the tendencies you have to live out. Well, or as appropriate to its tendencies as can be the case in the context of the genetic material of the father and mother. Right. I mean, that's one of the places where human beings, where, where complications start for human beings to begin with. You have these tendencies that are part of you that you want to continue to express in your next lifetime. So you've had this momentum build up and this momentum has built up for you uh, expressing certain tendencies, whatever they might be as a musician or whatever. And you're looking for a womb that will provide you with an appropriate milieu in which you can continue to, ex the, that, that pattern can continue expressing itself. Right, so they say you can't choose your parents, you do choose your parents. You do choose your parents. The usual case, however, is that just because you choose your parents in the context of one thing that is essential for your current incarnation doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the fit will be perfect. Sometimes you find that the fit is perfect. The parents are there, the children are there, they create a unit that's completely and utterly harmonious with no effort whatsoever, and they move ahead as if they had been born to do that, which they had been. And sometimes, as in my case, I never felt that I fit in in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana, and I got out of there as soon as I could, <laughs> and my, my family never understood why I was there and I never understood why I was there and we found a way to relate to one another in a healthy way but it took a lot more effort than it did for me you know when I arrived in India I hated it first and then after a while it just was so familiar that I started wondering why I hadn't <laughs> been born. Well maybe the climate and the places where you grew up got you prepared for living in India. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. And also, speaking of perfection, I mean, wouldn't you say that if we zoom back enough and, and kind of realize that we're swimming in an ocean of intelligence, that it's a, a kind of a cliche to say that everything happens for a reason and everything's perfect as it is. But I ascribe to that. If you, if you look at it deeply enough, how could there be accidents in an ocean of infinite intelligence? Oh, I agree entirely. And I do not believe that this was an accident at all. 
It's just that when we're thinking about how human beings get to where they are, some of the time the result will be because there were influences that promoted what you normally were in the direction of trying to do. And sometimes it will be because there were influences that tried very hard to dissuade you from what you were trying to do. Yeah. And, and I think of there being, you know, three main levels of inheritance that everybody grows up with. One is the inheritance that you bring with you from your previous incarnations. One is the inheritance you bring with you from your previous, uh, from your mother and father and their parents and their parents and their parents. And one is the effect of the culture in mm -hmm. which you live. So my father's parents were from the, the Moravia, the Czech Republic, and my mother was not. But suppose his parents had stayed there and, you know, my mother's parents had somehow ended up in Moravia and I had been born there, even from the same parents, I would have grown up very differently than if I had grown up in Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. Sure, you would have had a completely different Jyotish thing too. Uh, I would have had a completely different Jyotish thing, but in addition to that, I would have grown up with different languages. Right. And language is extremely important. My father, in fact, until he was six, he was born in Texas in 1920, until he was six, he only knew two words of English, aunt and uncle. Hmm. Otherwise, he spoke Czech because his parents and his siblings spoke Czech. And the guys working out in the fields were from uh, Mexico and they spoke Mexican. Spanish. And so, uh, Mexican. Oh, okay. Uh, in this particular case. <laughs> uh, because, you know, they weren't educated speaking the Spanish of the campesinos. Uh -huh. And his Spanish was always fluent for his entire life, and his Czech was always fluent, and he was embarrassed of both because he was not taught in either of those languages. Mm. The languages you grow up with, it would be difficult, or it is difficult for me at least, to envision language, I mean culture happening without language. Human language is to me a fundamental and absolutely required foundational element for culture of all kinds. So. The languages you start out with, each language has its own flavor. Each language is has its own history. Each language has its own attitudes. Um, as Vimalananda used to say, English is very good uh, for commercial things. English is very good for minutely describing very specific things in the external world. It's not very good for bringing all of those things together. Sanskrit is much better for bringing all of those things together. Mm -hmm. Or as Frederick the Great pointed out, and I may not be quoting him correctly, but it, this is very close. He was a king of Prussia and he said, I speak French in the court, Italian to my lovers, Spanish to God, and German to my horse. <laughs> That's because good. each language is useful. You can imagine Spanish because St. John of the Cross and so on. So many beautiful songs to God have been written in Spanish because it has that kind of flavor to it. Mm -hmm. French is an excellent court language. Yeah. Italian is a wonderful language. I love Italian. 
but it's especially good for wine, women, and song. Yeah, Inuit is a good one for talking about snow, probably. Inuit, I'm sure, is excellent <laughs> for snow. Just want to wrap up one point that we've discussed before we move on to a more focused uh, discussion of Kundalini, and that is that we were talking about tendencies in collective consciousness. You know, there we can think of political parties or uh, cultural phenomena or the battle over global warming and all. I always think in terms of a, a sort of a vertical strata of creation and how the surface expressions of things we see on the news are representative of much deeper layers of reality. You kind of alluded to this when we were talking about blowing a hole in the aura and being overtaken by subtle influences, but it seems to me that there's a sort of an epic battle taking place on subtle levels between various forces, positive and negative, which of course, you know, that kind of thing has depicted, been depicted mythologically or, or in the, the, the Vedic literature and the Puranas, the gods and the demons always battling it out. The battle seems, I don't know, maybe it's always been intense, but there seems to be a greater um, contrast these days as if positive and negative forces are both sort of increasing in their, in their strength and distinctness. And, uh, you know, the, those puppeteers are, are uh, polarizing uh, humanity in, in a variety of ways. So, I don't know, just do you have any comments on, on that line of thinking regarding this whole thing? Well, uh, if, we, if we do nothing but recognize that nothing would exist without duality, and if we look at duality, I mean, we use the terms positive and negative, and they themselves in our language have certain potentially like negative, has a potentially negative, pejorative association to it. Sure. But, but it from, looked at from another perspective, it really is nothing except, I mean, electricity. The nature of something that's dual, like a positive charge, and an electron over here, and a no electron, of, you know, a hole in a conductor over here, the nature is that these two, number one, will be attracted to each other, but at the same time, there will be conditions under which they repel one another. And when they repel one another, the more the, rep the repelling force is allowed to activate, the greater there will be a polarization of charge over here and a polarization of charge over here, until it reaches a point where either you have a lightning bolt or a spark crosses the gap, or somehow or another that polarization is resolved. So I agree with you. I think there is quite a bit of polarization happening. And it's quite possible that that polarization will continue until there is some sort of event that causes the polarization to resolve again. And we've seen this happen throughout uh, history as well. I mean, polarization happened uh, back at the time of World War II. We had the, even if we don't think about, you know, democracies versus totalitarian societies, we had the polarization of two different types of totalitarian societies. We had the the fascists and the communists. And they hated one another possibly even more than the non-totalitarians hated the totalitarians because hate was so much a part of who they define themselves as. So I do think that that there is increasing polarization and, and it looks as if there is something in the environment that is facilitating that. There was the, the, the Bush-Gore election, which started off this whole process of the country basically to being divided into two more or less 
equal camps so, so that it's now very difficult to get anything done because people are so much invested in their idea of how things should be. I am reminded, however, of, um, I, and I can't think of the name right now, but it was a book that Auspensky wrote um, about, about his, his studies with Gurdjieff back in Russia in, um, in and around the time of the revolution in World War I. And Gurdjieff said uh, at one point, it's extremely fortunate that we're being able to meet at this time because there is such a great crisis happening at the moment in Russia that it is permitting the consensus reality that normally would make it very difficult for this kind of knowledge to appear. All of these people are now, their awareness the pressure of their thinking is now is much less because their awareness is so riveted by the war and the revolution and so on. That allows us not to be influenced so much by the pressure of that consensus reality. And it allows us to see things more clearly, more genuinely, more uniquely. And nowadays, of course, not only do we have this polarization happening, but we have an even more dramatic form of consensus reality happening in the form of the internet. And don't get me wrong, I use the internet every day. But the fact is that it's its own form of externalized consensus reality that is dragging everybody into it and is creating what I think has the potential to be potentially extremely pathological and bizarre result. You know, you've heard of the singularity, I'm mm -hmm. sure. And so we have people who sincerely believe that at some point it will be possible to upload our personalities into servers somewhere. They don't explain, and I have not, or I haven't heard anybody explain yet how it, what's going to happen when the, ser the power to the server gets cut or when a virus gets into the program. And I don't pay much of time thinking about that because the very fact is that they're not thinking clearly. There's a new movie coming out on that theme, by the way, starring Johnny Depp called Trans oh, yeah. Transcendence. Transcendence. Yeah. I've, right. seen the, I've seen the, the, the trailers for that. Yeah. The problem, I mean, one of the problems, there are abundant problems, but one of the main problems that, that, that the people who, who, are, who have invested themselves in this concept are not thinking about is the fact that human beings are utterly dependent on getting regular inputs from the external environment. That's what keeps us in a condition of being able to function. We're, we're, whether we're aware of it or not, we're hearing sounds, subliminal sounds all the time. We're getting the movement of air for our touch receptors. We're seeing things. All of this is reassuring us and reminding us that we actually, we're individuals, but in an environment, that there is a, a, a to and fro between this. I have a young friend, young meaning mid-30s, who works developing software for complicated imaging applications, works with radar and things like that. And as part of this, he was invited one day into a room where they test radars and things like that. And it's a room in which because of the way it's, it has, you know, what's on the walls and how it's painted and so on. There is no reflection of sound and there's no reflection of light. 
So if you shine a beam of light directly at someone, they can see the beam of light. But as soon as you turn it to where the beam is not directly at them, there's no light anymore. If I talk directly at you so your ears can directly hear what the, the vibrations from my mouth, you will pick it up and you can hear me. But if I turn even this much, you can't hear me anymore because no sound is coming to you from anywhere except from that direction that, it, that you're pointed in. And he said that after 20 minutes, he had to leave. And he said that even the guys who work in there every day, one hour is their limit. Wow. Because they need the normal stimulation. They need that normal stimulation. Yeah. So <clears throat> an oh. hour and a half after Mr. So -and -so, Dr. So-and-so ends up in the, you know, the giant server in the sky, then what? Also, I mean, that whole notion that our personality could be uploaded to a computer. I mean, a single cell, a single neuron is far more complex than the most sophisticated computer we've ever designed. And it's, and you know, you wouldn't have much of a personality if you only had a single neuron. You need trillions of them. <laughs> and, and they need to all be interconnected in, in ways that are, you know, there are more new connections between our neurons than there are stars in the galaxy. So I think it's going to be a long time before we design a computer that could, you know, store a personality. And those connections are continuously running. There's right. the, the so-called default mode network, which takes up 80% or something of the brain's energy and is running all the time and you're never aware of it. It's running in the background and it's just continuously creating the foundation of this thing that we call the personality. So no. This yeah, is so yeah, it's a nice sci-fi notion, but yeah. It's, yeah. But I will, you know, I like watching Johnny Depp, so I will Yeah, it'll be a fun movie. I'll go see, I'll go see it. Yeah. Well, this might be a good segue into talking more explicitly about Kundalini. Why don't you start by just defining it? Because, you know, most people understand Kundalini is some kind of energy that resides at the base of the spine, and it can be awakened, and it rises up the spine, and when it rises up, you get enlightened. I mean, that's probably in a nutshell what most people understand, but I think there's probably a lot more to it. So let's go for that. I'm going to start off by saying that First of all, language is a very uh, powerful thing. The more people that use the word Kundalini, the more they apply their own concept as to what, the, what that word means. And that concept will adhere to whatever it is that Kundalini really is. It will adhere to the outside so that the more as time goes on, people look at Kundalini and they will see more of the adherence of the different concepts that people have projected in her direction rather than seeing her. And, and you'll please explain why you're using a, the word her as you, as you go along here. Yeah, yes, thank you. Uh, that is an extremely good point. Using the word her, not because she should per se be confused with a human female, but the word her because in our universe we employ the concept of herness and femininity and so on to represent that energy and that protoplasm and those hormones and that organization of a living being that can reproduce, that can actually, especially in the context of uh, vertebrates and mammals, that can give rise to a copy of that species. But not only that, I mean, whenever I have heard anything about Kundalini, it's not presented as merely some sort of abstract energy, but as being intelligent and as having a sort of a, a marvelously uh, intricate way of transforming us in various ways. And so if it's intelligent, then we could certainly imagine it being a her or a him. 
having some kind of personification in some way, could we not? We can, definitely. Yeah. And of course, wherever there is a him, there will always be a her. Mm. Where there is a her, there will always be a him. We're living in a world of duality. Fundamentally, from our perspective in the dual world, there is great benefit in looking at things with two eyes, at least to begin with, and trying to understand who we are and where we've come from and where we're going. There is a lot of use in looking at it from the perspective of Shakti and Shaktiman or Shiva or whatever you want to call it. A principle of intelligence that is not that that is that maintains stability of intent and position, relative stability of intent and position and awareness. And another principle that is more dynamic. It's just like what we see in the atomic world. You have the nucleus, proteins, protons and neutrons made up of quarks, and you have electrons. And the electrons are always moving. And that's their job. And the protons and neutrons are doing nothing but sitting there and letting the electrons move around them. And that's their job. And the protons have a positive charge and electrons have a negative charge and it keeps the whole show and going. Every, and everything goes around. Mm -hmm. we, we could just as easily have said that the protons have a negative charge and the electrons have a positive charge. And in fact, in the antimatter world, a positron is just an electron that has a positive charge. Mm. It just so happens that we've applied the positive and negative words to these things, but the fact is that they are two charges and they are opposite and they're repelling one another. They're attracted, but they're repelling. And one of them is acting as a relatively stable, though even though we know that protons are not per se, you know, they're not actually completely stationary in the universe. So far as we know, nothing is stationary in the universe. The sun is traveling at the hundreds of thousands of miles an hour in one direction, and the galaxy is being dragged towards the great attractor, and God only knows what the great attractor is being dragged towards. But everything is moving. But relatively speaking, the nucleus is not moving, and the electrons are moving around it. Relatively speaking, the Shakti is moving, and the whatever you want to call it, Shiva or Shaktiman, let's call it Shiva, and Shiva is, relatively speaking, not moving. That's the dynamic that's been generated. That's the dynamic that's been around since the days of the Big Bang, which is a long time ago. And that's the dynamic in which you and I are existing. And that's the dynamic that is the Kundalini dynamic. The Kundalini Shakti and uh, what you referred to earlier, the Ahankara Shakti. Ahankara is a nice Sanskrit word. Aham means I. A is the first letter in the Sanskrit alphabet. Ha is the last one. So the alpha and the omega, everything that you personally can identify with as being part of you is aham. Ahamkara just means the thing that creates aham. And if you want to think about, if you want to visualize Kundalini as coming from the bottom and going up to the top, we should think about ahamkara as coming from the top and going down to the bottom. Ahankara starts out as being Shakti that is completely not identified with anything limited other than itself, but that progressively becomes more and more limited as it comes down and gets individuated into, in our case, the human being. And 
The reason, of course, why they talk about Kundalini as being asleep is that in the average person, the vast majority of the Shakti in the body is being employed to keep the organism functioning in the context of which the organism has been evolved. We've been evolved over many, many millions of years for the purpose, in my opinion, of being able to act as an environment in which consciousness can manifest itself. Beautiful, nicely put. Yeah. And it has taken a long time for us, billions of years for us to get here, going through various stages and various kinds of things. And to get to a point where we can, in fact, have awareness of things that we can be aware of, like the fact that there is something other than our organisms. And our organisms, of course, I mean, I think it's very useful to remember that the human organism, we like to think of ourselves as human. That the human organism, made up of more or less roughly 100 trillion cells, only 10% of which are, human. are actually human. Just so people understand what you're saying there, so 90% of them are various bacteria and other microscopic organisms that are completely non-human, but on whom our lives depend. On whom our lives depend. On which? And who? I yeah, on whom. We can, yeah, they're embodiments. They're because they also have awareness. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And their awareness is not the same kind of awareness that we have, but it still is quite, and, and in a way that's good because we don't have to be talking to them all day long. <laughs> but in a, you know, negotiating, okay, you know, do you agree that we should uh, go to the movies? But we do have to negotiate with them in the context of what we eat and, and, and if they're working well, we do think more clearly. And if they're not working well, we definitely do not think clearly. So they're an important part of who actually we are, even though we say that they are separate. Yeah, they're and integral. The whole thing is extremely complicated. Even the mitochondria, which originally, you know, human cells were originally single cell bacteria also. And then they started taking in other bacteria, like the mitochondria which were independent at one point, and then they thought, huh, this, these you know, animal cells are the going thing, and this is where our uh, future lies, and they decided to move in, and their genetic material, of course, is separate from our genetic material, but it's still our genetic material anyway. But we'd die without them, because it's... We would, we would be dead very quickly. Yeah. So all of this is part of this negotiation as to who exactly we are. How do we define ourselves? As individuals. As individuals. I can think of myself as an individual, but I'm more of a individual because I have all kinds of components that are making me up, including, I like what E.J. Gold said, and I'm going to have to um, paraphrase him, a human being, the, the most noteworthy characteristic of the human being is that he or she is a set of often unrelated personalities that possesses no particular ability to determine which personality will be operating at any one moment. <laughs> but if reincarnation is true, then it it's, again goes beyond the physical level, and there's, there's something which carries a package of information from one vehicle to the next when the first vehicle no longer functions and we need a new one. And so, you know, perhaps the jiva or, or something is the core of what we are as an individual. Yes? No? 
Yes, except for the fact that we can't even think of a jiva necessarily as being individual. Because sometimes you will end up having one jiva manifesting itself in more than one human being. Yeah. And sometimes you'll have more than one jiva manifesting, sometimes occasionally, sometimes at the same time, in the same human being. Right. So even there, you can't really say <laughs> that there is one thing that... And this, of course, is something that humans don't want to hear, because we like very much to think that I am an individual. And yeah. this is what ahankara is doing. The job of ahankara is just to find things that we believe are mine. This is mine. Here is my shirt. Here is my, here are my glasses. Uh, here, here is my knowledge. Uh, here is my spouse. Here is my house. And the more that you identify with those things... You reminded me of a Talking Heads song right now. This is a Talking Heads song that has lyrics like that. <laughs> this is not my beautiful house. Right, yeah, yeah, that's the song. This is not my beautiful life. <laughs> uh, same as it ever was. Right. Is exactly the situation. It is the same as it ever was because we have, since whenever it was that we became self-aware, whenever that might have been, and I personally think that it happened after, you know, humans harnessed fire, because that was, to me, one of the, if not the big... Let me, let me interject a question. Oh, I'm sorry, finish your thought, and then I'll ask a well, question. Uh, no, it's just that the nature of ahankar, the nature of, this sh the nature of any shakti, is that it is attracted to, you know, the nature of the electron is it's attracted to the proton, the nucleus, but it can't quite get there. But it continues to move. The nucleus is attracted to the proton, but it's not moving. It's serving as a center around which the electron can move. The shakti, the kundalini shakti, is looking for something, and it's looking for the supreme reality to connect to. But it can't find the supreme reality because it happens now to be in the body. And it's looking for the supreme reality in the body. But while it's in the womb, it's having to create all of the different limbs, it's having to create all of the different connections among the different cells and the neurons and so on. Its attention becomes monopolized by all of this, this multiplicity and manifestation. And the more that it goes into this reality and the more that it becomes familiar with the five elements, earth, water, fire, air, and space, the less it becomes able to remember what it was like to be aware of that reality that does not have any limitations uh, applied to it. Mm. And, and that's why people suggest that the Kundalini is sleeping, because it's not that she's forgotten that reality, it's just that that reality, she's only very slightly aware of that reality because she's aware of so many other realities that are so necessary in order for us to exist. As I understand it, the word ahamkar means eye-maker, right? Could we kind of zoom out and say that there are fundamental forces, but simplistically speaking, two fundamental forces in the universe. One is the eye-maker force, which is responsible for individuation since the time of the Big Bang and individuates with greater and greater and greater sophistication to the point where 
the second fundamental force can begin to function in a conscious way, which begins to reverse the whole process. Uh, in other words, we, you know, it takes a sophisticated nervous system to begin to wake up to the notion that I, ultimately I am unbounded, I am universal consciousness, and to begin to you know, seek the experience of that in, until it's established. Uh, so there's this sort of feedback loop or cycle, you know, from here to here, from eye to eye, from source through course and back to source. How does that all sit with you? I've spent probably a total of 18 years in India nowadays, mm -hmm. but 10 years at a stretch. Mm -hmm. More, well, six years and then four years. Uh, six years studying Ayurveda in Pune, not far from Bombay, and four years in Bombay. And while not far from, well, 21 kilometers from Pune is a, a small town called Arlandi, in which there is the samadhi of a very famous saint, probably the most famous saint in Maharashtra, Nyaneshwar Maharaj. He wrote a beautiful commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. He wrote a couple of other things, including a, a book called the Amritanubhava, the Nectar of Experience. And in that book, he says, the Supreme Reality wanted to perceive itself, but it could not do so because there was nothing like space or time or anything like that. The Supreme Reality, therefore, created the universe to act as a mirror in which it could see itself. Because no human being can see itself without a mirror. So this, the universe acts as that mirror, and according to this theory, which I buy into very much, the universe decided that as a result of its desire to, to, to perceive itself, it had to create within itself a part of itself that believed it was different. And that was the moment of the Big Bang. And that was the moment of inflation that happened a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the actual Big Bang, when suddenly there was an energy that repelled itself so that we went from the size of a, of, of a quark to the size of several trillion miles within a trillionth of a second. So an indescribable speed and violence that you can't even begin to think about conceptualizing. But as a result of that sudden expansion, there was immediately afterwards, of course, because karma is equal and opposite, there was an immediate and opposite return of awareness in the direction of attempting to find that unity again. But now it's attempting to find the unity in the context of there being this giant field of what appears to be separation created. And that was the beginning of everything. Ever since then, the entire universe has been trying to return to that state of unity, but unable to do so because of all of these forces that were generated at that moment of separation so that the mirror could be created. The human being is acting as that very mirror. And within the context of the microcosm that is the human being, one can, at least under certain conditions and for a certain period of time, act as a mirror for that consciousness and have, have one's awareness be completely freed, at least temporarily, from all of those limitations that have been added in the ensuing billions of years so that the supreme in the external and the supreme in the internal can recognize that they are in fact identical. And it seems to me that what you end up with is something more than the original unity because you have a situation in which unity can be a living reality. 
it's not like the universe is striving to just go back to the unmanifest with nothing going on. It's that the universe seems to be forming more and more sophisticated instruments through which it can know itself, human being being one. And in a human instrument, it can be uh, fine-tuned to the extent that the fundamental unity can be known and perceived and lived while yet living within the boundaries of, of human life. Those boundaries become universal in their, in their nature with the proper sort of uh, fine-tuning. When I was in uh, college in Oklahoma, I became very fond of the works of Alfred Jarry, a French uh, uh, surrealist and Dadaist writer. And uh, one of the things that he said has stuck with me uh, ever since. He defined God as the tangential point between zero and infinity. I believe that that is exactly what the universe is doing. It's trying to, it's trying to employ us to facilitate an awareness of the fact that the creativity that is inherent in the universe can best display itself when the unity and the diversity meet at that boundary where they meet, at that boundary where they're both are present, but mm -hmm. in fact neither is present also. That's where the real creativity mm. is. And, and that is very much what the Kundalini, in my opinion, is attempting to do. And for some people, the right thing for them to do is to sit down, do their sadhana, awaken Kundalini, send it out the top of their head, and return to wherever it is they came from. But for other people, the right thing to do is to have Kundalini progressively have it identify less with their individuality and identify more with the unity and then let there be a dynamic interplay between those two forms of identification and being creative in the context of the world in which that individual lives and the people and the places and the things mm -hmm. and the dogs and the trees and yeah. all of those things that we can bring more awareness and more love and more reality too. Yeah, you said an interesting thing in that, in that thing I read that you sent. Uh, you said you were talking about integrating physical and spiritual life, and you said that health and longevity require that ahamkara identify strongly with the organism so that sufficient prana will enliven the body, while spiritual life requires that ahamkara relinquish most of it. No incarnate being can be either wholly worldly or wholly spiritual. Too much spirit burns the world out of you and makes it impossible to retain your body. Too much attachment drowns your consciousness in worldliness. And there's a term you're probably familiar with, lesha vidya, which is faint, yeah. faint remains of ignorance. You, you need to have that little greasy surface on the palm after casting off the butterball. You need to have the, the faint remains of ignorance in order for uh, unity to be a living reality. Without at least that, you're a dead duck. Yes. <laughs> and eventually a cremated or buried duck right. or, or, or an eaten duck. Yeah. Absolutely. This is one of the things that people do not, many people do not fundamentally understand about spirituality in general and Kundalini in particular. That if you want to stay in the world, there is always going to be some grease on the palm. Mm -hmm. There is always going to be a blind spot. It may be a very tiny blind spot. As my Jyotish guru, who lives in Toronto, is a very eccentric Punjabi gentleman, as he likes to say, a real guru makes one mistake every 10,000 years. 
But that's still one mistake. Yeah. Vishwamitra still made mistakes. Mm -hmm. All of the rishis have made mistakes. All of the various deities have made mistakes. Maybe one every 10,000 years. It's still a mistake. It's still a limitation. Jesus Christ on the cross asked why he had been forsaken. Right. He was perfectly aware that he had not been forsaken, but there was that moment. There was that just, and it was just a tiny moment that he, he couldn't see it anymore. And that was Jesus Christ. That's not you and me. Right. So everybody has that. And there's no use in pretending that, in my opinion, that, you know, we have come to the end of uh, history or the end of the Vedas or the end or anything. And, and I, you know, I've become enlightened. As soon as you say that you're enlightened, and nobody in India says they're enlightened. There's not really, I don't even think in Sanskrit there's a, a word for enlightenment. There or don't words. you have moksha and words like that? Right, but does moksha really mean enlightenment? Moksha means uh, you have been freed, literally. Mm -hmm. Mukti means freedom. Or as my mentor used to like to say, moham kshayati iti moksha. Moksha means you have, uh, your delusion has been dissipated. And he liked to say enlightenment, what that really means is that you have worked hard and you've gotten the grace of your gurus and your benefactors and so on, so that the weight of the karmas on you has become less. And that means that now there is a lightening. And once you become lighter, you're able to see more clearly. Your energy moves more clearly. You can connect more, more readily and more clearly. And, and things move more smoothly. That doesn't mean that you've become supreme. That does mean that you are now able to actually function as you should be functioning. Right. So you would probably agree that there, there is no penultimate state beyond which there's no possibility of further refinement or, or clarification or embodiment or something. But, you know, there's always a next horizon, no matter how many horizons you've reached. As far as I'm concerned, whatever experience or concept you might have, that can always be transcended in some other way. Mm -hmm. And I don't see that there is any end to that, any more than there is an end to the universe. Because, I mean, so the way it looks now, there are big bangs happening, maybe trillions of them as we speak. Yeah, some physicists say it's like bubbles in ginger ale. There are just yeah. infinite universes all bubbling around. So now, a few minutes ago, you, you kind of rattled off a description of what some people might like to do, which is sit down, awaken their kundalini, have it rise up, go out the top of the head, and they're out of here. That, of course, you know, anyone who could do it so easily and, and smoothly and quickly is one in a, in a billion. For the most part, for most people, it's a delicate, long, drawn-out, perhaps arduous, perhaps extremely intense process and uh, full of all sorts of potential pitfalls and sidetracks and, and, uh, and difficulties. So let's, let's kind of get a, let's have a discussion about the realistic experience, as most people are going to experience it if they do, of what happens when Kundalini begins to awaken and the, the various stages of progress that one has to undergo in order for its, its awakening to reach its full blossoming or maturity. I think the, the best thing that can be said about that is that this is something that really is individual. It really is absolutely different for each person, which is why I think it is unfortunate 
it's on the one hand understandable and natural, but it's also unfortunate that people try to talk about what is a an ordinary or a normal, if there was such a thing, kundalini experience. Because, for one thing, the very fact of knowing the word kundalini, the very fact of having some idea about the chakras, means that that offers your awareness, that offers your ahankara, your kundalini, something to identify with. So, maybe, possibly, you should have awakened kundalini without bothering to awaken any of the chakras. Or maybe you should have only awakened one chakra for you. But you read that there are six chakras and you have to awaken, and all of those six chakras are important. They are all important, but they don't necessarily have to be awakened by your attention. You don't necessarily have to pay any attention to anything other than the supreme reality. What is important is that you have to get your prana to circulate in the central channel, what they call sushumna. That's absolutely important. Okay, so you're saying that kundalini can awaken without you really knowing anything about kundalini, and it can actually progress through the all the various chakras can become enlivened and, and awakened without you really knowing anything about chakras, that you can sort of shoot for the highest first, the supreme reality, and, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else should be added unto thee kind of thing, right? Is that yes. what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And that may work for some people, and that may not work for other people. Mm -hmm. The chakras are very useful. Definitely the chakras exist. The word chakra, of course, has also taken on its own constellation of connotations that people now, that are implicit to it, and of course that are working on us without us necessarily being aware of how they're working on So the chakras, they are centers of energy, and we definitely agree there's a center at the throat and one at the heart and so on. The chakras, as they were talked about in those texts in which they talk about chakras, and many texts do not identify only six. Some texts talk about nine, some only talk about ones. But these are things that have to be created. Those chakras don't exist in the organism, just in the ordinary organism. They have to be created by the energy going to those locations and enlivening the potential chakra that exists in the subtle body at that location. So you're saying that, let's say, the average person who hasn't enlivened any of them, they're there in the subtle body, but they're in a sort of a latent or dormant form, and they don't really... In a seed form. Yeah. But they have not sprouted. They don't really serve any kind of function whatsoever. There's no sort of you know, digestive area chakra, heart chakra, intellect chakra. They're, they're just all sort of, sort of non-functional potentials that, that, don't get in, that don't actually do anything until they get enlivened? Well, just suppose for a moment that there is a, a seed at the heart chakra. Mm -hmm. And this seed is in the subtle part of the subtle body. So that seed is there, and being a seed, it is a very active, I mean, a very, it has a strong energy. And that energy, even though the seed itself is not displaying what it can do, it is radiating energy in all directions. And that is picked up by the rest of the subtle body, which transmits it to the pranic body, so now the pranic body has a strong pranic center here. Pranic Just let me ask, is the pranic body uh, more manifest or less manifest than the subtle body? Just to define more your... Manifest. More manifest, okay. 
Right. So we have the physical body. We have the subtle body, which is the physical body is in Sanskrit the annamaya kosha. It's made out of anna means food. It's made out of food. It is nourished by food. It's made sick by food. It's made well by food. The pranic body is made out of prana. It's made sick by prana, and it's made well by prana. Is that pranamaya kosha? The pranamaya kosha. Okay. And the manomaya kosha. Mana means mind. Right. Mana literally means the thing that measures. And the mind is made out of thoughts and emotions and concepts and memories and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's made sick by those and it's made well by those. So the mind is the area in which we represent the five elements in non-physical form. The body is where we represent the five elements in physical form. And the prana is communicating between the two. Ties the whole thing together. Ties the whole thing together. I see. Now the prana, of course, is an expression of the supreme reality. So the prana is extremely intelligent. It is, of course, intelligent in a limited way. Individuated. From the perspective of the body, especially the bacteria, but also the human cells, prana is God. Because it provides them with their, I mean, it provides all of us with our vitality, but the amount of manifested awareness in a bacterium is not very small. But the amount of pranic awareness... Is not very is, big, you mean to say. It, uh, right, is not very big. But the amount of pranic awareness is very large. So it possesses consciousness. It's just not consciousness like we per se think about consciousness. It's consciousness in the context of the type of protoplasm that that type of protoplasm can experience at any one moment. So you have the awareness that has been incarnated in, in bacteria and in dogs and in trees and in so on for a long time. It has gained a lot of experience. It's gained a lot of awareness about how awareness and matter can cooperate with one another. It finds a human body. And in the human body, it sees that its opportunities for expression are even greater. But it starts off by, of course, having to build the body. It has to grow the body. And it's going to spend the first at least 12 years or so doing nothing but growing the body, or almost nothing, because that's what it needs to be spending its time doing. And then at the moment of puberty, it really starts to individuate, because, of course, there is an agenda. Everything in the universe has an agenda. The agenda of nature is that species should evolve, and what evolution implies is that the species should reproduce because you will have individuals and they will grow, <clears throat> they, will get, um, they will get big, they will get older, they will die. So who is going to maintain that progression of the species if not for a new version of that, uh, a new individual coming out from that same uh, pattern that has been established in the living protoplasm? So. We, we have all of this energy that has been working through the human species for so many hundreds of thousands and previous human species, millions of years. And it is all, on the one hand, attempting to move us in the direction of, of opening to the supreme reality, but it's also attempting to move us in the direction of continuing to evolve the species, which can only happen if there is reproduction. Sure. And reproduction can only happen if there is one sperm and one egg, then meat. That's the only way zygotes are formed. So there has to be a method by which nature can 
bring the sperm and the ovum together. And in trees, you have pollen and bees and all kinds of stuff. And in humans, you have rock concerts. <laughs> bars. And, and bars. <laughs> yeah, and Match.com, and exactly. Chris, Christian Mingle. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's, there's so many, but it's all about the same thing. Puberty is a very important aspect of individuation because it's now nature telling the organism, okay, you are an organism, congratulations to you for that, but there is no free barbecue for you, <laughs> as we say in Texas. Of course, we say it different. There ain't no free barbecue. <laughs> and there's no free barbecue. I've given you this organism, and now you're going to have to produce another one, or you're going to have to help other people who are producing other ones. So I don't have any kids, but I've spent a lot of time, including with this family I have right here, who I've known for, well, I've known the lady for 40 years now. Then met her husband, and now I often travel with the kids and do things with them and so on. So if you're not going to, to have kids yourself, you're going to have to do something to facilitate, to do something nice for somebody else's kids, because that's the, what you owe to, that's the runa, the debt that you owe to the yoni to the species in which you were born. And that debt has to be paid. I don't know, so, some people probably don't do either, but... And maybe they're helping out in some other way. Yeah. We hope they're helping out in some other way. So as the Beatles said, we're all doing what we can. We're all doing what we can. Yeah. So in any event, this is what nature says. Okay, it's your obligation now to reproduce. But reproduction is only gonna happen as a result of one female human and one male human, except for those unusual experiences where, you know, the woman gets pregnant with, from two different men on the same day or something. That's yeah, or, or so immaculate conception or whatever. Or immaculate conception. <laughs> but usually it's one woman and one man. So now we're talking about real individuality. So nature is pressing individuality into that context. And that's why adolescence provides us an opportunity to introduce the adolescence to the kundalini shakti. Sometimes it's not feasible to do that, especially if they are overburdened by Facebook and Twitter and so on. This is why in the past, I mean, you know, for women it's much easier. As soon as you start to bleed, if you're lucky, your mother and her relatives will take you to the wise woman and then there will be some some awareness of the spirituality that is connected with being a woman introduced to you then. And in the past, it used to be the case that this was done for boys also, that they would be taken out by the elders of the tribe and beaten up a little bit and forced to do something really hard so that they would understand that there was something more to life than just indulgence. And in those societies that were really sensible, they would also introduce them to the fact that now that this transformation is happening in, in you, you can take this moment for transformation to understand what your goal, your ultimate goal really should be, and that is to reconnect to the supreme reality. Okay, so you're saying that ideally in a culture, when the, the hormones start to kick in and you know sexual desires begin to become strong in adolescence, one is at the same time introduced to the idea that there is a higher purpose to this energy aside from just procreation that you have to counterbalance the procreative drive with the desire for spirituality. Is that what you're saying in a nutshell? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Ideally. Because after all, it's we humans are microcosms. 
So, mm -hmm. I mean, even if you did nothing but introduce the concept that, that, that you are a small unit of the big universe, but you're reflecting everything that goes on in that universe. And so I, I think what you're implying here is that, and I've, of course, uh, most people who, who've read about, we got our dog here too, yes. most people who've read about this stuff kind of have come across this idea that the sexual energy is the very same energy that one uses to awaken the, the chakras and rise to higher levels of spirituality, and it should be used responsibly and not just squandered in order to facilitate that awakening. Um, that it has its purpose for, for sexuality, but that has to sort of be put in proper proportion. It does, does everything in life. Food has its purpose, but you can become a glutton. Yes, sleep has its purpose, but you can lie around in the hammock doing nothing all day. So, absolutely. And it's because this is such a primal drive, and it's because it's something that is so central to the continuation of life on Earth, that nature goes out of its way to make this desire so strong. Mm -hmm. And desire is, after all, on the one hand, yes, it's a specific desire, but Desire is desire. You can take a specific desire, and if you alter its direction slightly, then you may end up in a very different place than you would have if you had simply followed the desire to, to where it was leading you according to the nothing other than your personal karmas, the karmas of your parents, and the karmas of your culture. And that's, of course, where we hope that the inheritance of your guru or your mentor or your benefactor or whatever you want to call him or her or it or them who give you some guidance who give you a, an idea about wh what you could do with all this energy that you have not just what everybody else is telling you to do not just what you may be imagining but what other possibilities are there and the fact that there may be limitations i mean much as I would like to, even if when I was young and enthusiastic, I was never coordinated enough to become a ballet dancer. I could have tried, but I would have failed miserably. You have to know your limitations, but in the context of those limitations, there are so many things that can be done that will move you in the direction where you really need to go, which is the direction of being as transparent as possible to the supreme reality, while at the same time being a functional human being. Okay. So there's things we could talk about here. We could talk about priestly celibacy, for instance, that whole issue in the Catholic Church, which uh, probably arose from this principle we're discussing here of using spiritual energy for... But then again, it's not for everyone. And if, and if it becomes something that's, that's mandated for everyone, uh, at least for a whole class of people, then there's problems. And we see what the problems are. If it's something that's natural and spontaneous, if you, if you realize to yourself, wait, this is not really what I want to do. Yeah. This is, I don't really want to be part of the world as it is. I want to spend my time more in that world, even though I'm going to be partly in this world. That's a, a, a wonderful thing. But that's not everybody. And when things start to get organized, you know the old saying, you know, God said, look, um, here is awareness. And the devil said, great, I'll organize. <laughs> yeah. So when things get organized, and it happens, it's not just the Christian church, it's, it's every, you have a bunch of sadhus in India, 90, 90 or 95 or 99% are, who are either useless or malefic. And some of them are really 
legitimate and are some of the most amazing people you'll uh, you'll meet. But that's only some of them. And the others are kind of wandering around and they're, yes, I'm celibate. And they're celibate. Uh, as they say in Hindi, Mile tomari neto sada brahmachari, which means, and I'm translating loosely, and I'm cleaning up the language ever so slightly. <laughs> um, if I find her, I will engage in uh, congress with her. It's a, it's a stronger word that is used. Otherwise, I'm always a brahmachari. <laughs> right. So I'm a brahmachari when I'm not uh, having sex. But then I'm finished with having sex. I'm a brahmachari. I'm a, I'm a supreme celibate. Again. Yeah, so there's a lot of hypocrites and phonies out there. Yes. And all of us at some time or another, and me especially in, in addition, have, always, have done things that are hypocritical. But at least to be able to identify that and find a way to stop doing that. Yeah. Unfortunately, does not happen when you develop for yourself a pattern that becomes so strong that the pattern starts to take you over. As, as Vimalananda would say very frequently when I was pouring out the whiskey for him, whenever you drink, remember one thing. One of two things is going to happen. Either the drink is going to drink you or you are going to drink it. Either you're going to take it and it's going to change your internal chemistry and that's going to change your awareness and you're going to use that awareness to become more open to the supreme reality or you're going to drink that and it is going to change your awareness and it's going to do nothing other than cause you to do everything that you've been doing that is not useful and to do more of it and to do things that will facilitate you doing even more of it because alcohol, it has its own agenda. It wants you to drink it so people will make more, so people will drink it. Mm. Uh, Michael Pollan, who I love his name since he writes about botany, wrote a book that I can't remember at the moment the title of, but it's a book about four species, cannabis, potatoes, apples, and, and a fourth species. <laughs> and, and how these have um, learned how to cause humans to serve them. Carpet grass is a good example. I'm not sure that was the fourth example in his book, but I mean, think about it. Otherwise, intelligent human men spend hours of their valuable free time on the weekends doing nothing but taking care of these patches of green in front of and behind their houses for the, no purpose other than going out later and chopping those blades of grass down. But, but a few species of grass have extended to millions of acres all around this country and other countries. Now, we could argue that, in fact, the grass has taken over those humans and is driving them around, telling them what to do. So, in fact, there are many, many, many things, and it has been argued, and I personally believe that it's true, that almost, if not every species out there very much wants to get humans to do what they want to do because they know that humans are number one the paramount species nowadays but also number two the species that can change things that can do things so we have plants we have dogs dogs control things cats control things they have different strategies the dog uses the eye this cat uses the, I'm going to ignore you until you do what I want. But they've found their strategies and how effective are those? 
And the reason these strategies work is because humans are willing to extend some of their awareness. Dogs become and cats become members of their families. Sometimes for people who have no children, they are their families. We can do this because we have this ability to identify with things as ours, ahankara. So when you start to release ahankara from your normal self-definition, you start to ask that question of who am I? Because now I know that I'm not the, only the body. And sometimes that question of who, it was enough for Ramana Maharshi, just asking the question, who am I all the time? Unfortunately, it's not enough for everybody because everybody doesn't have that supreme ability to see things as clearly as he did. It's like my mentor used to say, you know, people, people give discourses on the Bhagavad Gita all the time. And they don't realize that the Bhagavad Gita was delivered by Krishna, an avatar of a rishi, to Arjuna, who was almost a rishi himself. So we have the words, the actual prana that was being conveyed between them, the emotions that were being conveyed in order for this to be translated, unless you're at their level, you don't have that. So you will start to look only at the words, you will start to interpret only the words, and pretty soon you'll come up with some interpretations that are, and you'll get other people to, along with those interpretations, and they will build a temple, and you will sit in the ashram, and there'll be a big complicated thing going on that is not really going in the direction of, of disconnecting yourself from all of this complication. Yeah, so you brought up some interesting points here. The one about the plants, I mean, if I were to summarize that, I would, ha I would say it's that there's an evolutionary force that permeates and ultimately motivates all creation, and that you can see it functioning in various plant and animal species in that they conduct themselves in such a way as to have other species, namely us, the most influential one, serve them. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's, there's sort of a higher intelligence that can be discerned in these so-called lower, more, more lowly intelligent uh, species. So anyway, that seemed to be the key point on that one. Exactly. And, and the, more, the more that we think of ourselves as being the higher species, the easier it is for these other so-called lower species to manipulate us. <laughs> and then uh, the, the point about the, the, the Bhagavad Gita and the temples and all that, I would say you were, you were basically saying that people can speak or write and do naturally speak or write from their level of consciousness, but that's not necessarily and is usually not the level of consciousness from which people hear or read what they've said or written. And so there is a communication gap and knowledge crumbles on the hard rocks of ignorance. The, you know, that things can be completely garbled and misinterpreted and misunderstood and, and watered down uh, because you can, and, and you know people uh, spiritual people find people on a spiritual path that they can read a book like the Bhagavad Gita every five years for over for 50 years and every time they read it they get a new level of meaning out of it because their level of consciousness has inched it it's evolved it's exactly. evolved it's come closer to the level at which it was expressed exactly and in certain Indian contexts, you know, that's what the guru would do. The guru would find a text, for example, or a, a practice, but let's use a text as an example. And he would tell the, the student, go study this text. And the idea was that the text provides you a framework into which you can take the experiences that you have, both your internal experiences and the experiences you have externally, and you can try to understand 
how you as an individual interact with the normative, the, you know, the sort of idealized world of the text. And so now you have, it's not even something to aspire towards, but it's, you have something that is out of the, is something mythic, something that's out of normal time, that is, it's in time, but it's in mythic time. And you're in normal time, so then the, 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 the creative dynamic between those two things allows or facilitates even more evolution, not only in you, but in the myth itself. Interesting. Let me break it back to Kundalini again. I've, you know, seen all sorts of things over the years. I've been on long meditation courses where there was a whole group of people who were actually asked to sit on the stage, in this particular case, who were going through Kriyas, you know, just kind of flying, thrashing around. And I've, I've you know, seen people like almost literally bouncing off the walls. I have a friend who, uh, you know, was his body was cooking so much that he could sit with the windows open in the wintertime with hardly any clothes on, and he was still hot. I have another friend who really went through hell with Kundalini and, you know, was just uh, unable to sleep and was burning up, you know, lying on the bathroom floor at three in the morning with this sort of intense energy frying her. And uh, eventually that she passed through that and it all, it all settled down. I just uh, I told her I was going to be interviewing you and she said, uh, you know, and she read that Kundalini thing that you wrote. She said, it sounds very scholarly. I'd, I'd like to know if this is coming from his own direct experience. So that's one question for you, how much you've experienced all this yourself, gone through the whole Kundalini awakening process. And, um, and then she added that it's interesting you should send this now because I've had the deep insight recently that the whole Kundalini experience is illusion, just more Maya, just another belief system. And I'm saying that as someone who has been thoroughly convinced of this reality of the energetic journey for 33 years. I didn't respond to her, but if I were to respond, uh, I would probably say that, well, you can write off anything as, as illusion, gravity is an illusion, but it still is a phenomenon in relative creation that you have to deal with and, and respect. Um, so, but in any case, key question is here, um, you know, the, the intensity of, of Kundalini experience, uh, your own experience with it, on what foundation you speak and write about it, and perhaps... Um, advice and even cautionary notes for those who want to get more involved in it and think it would be cool to to awaken their kundalini what what they might actually be getting themselves into un, unknowingly well let me start off with my advice to people who think it would be neat to awaken kundalini my advice is don't because you do absolutely do not have any clue as to what you might Unleash. unlock in yourself mm -hmm unleash and you have no clue as to whether you'd be able to put a leash on it yeah you say once awakened kundalini cannot be put back to sleep exactly in yeah. my personal case i had no idea at all about kundalini when just a few weeks after i turned 16 i took lsd for the first time mm. and all of a sudden without knowing anything i had read the bhagavad-gita maybe without understanding anything or thinking it was particularly interesting. Of course, that was the Edgerton yeah. translation, which was a bit... Pretty dry. Dry. But all of a sudden, I mean, I had no words for it, but all of a sudden I, I knew what prana was, and I understood how prana was moving, and I understood that if I was to allow myself, I could simply depart uh, from my body. And I also understood that if I did that, 
at this stage, and this was all happening, and I had, I mean, I had never had any thoughts of this sort of thing before. I understood that if I did that right now, there was a good chance that I wouldn't be able to find my way back. So uh, I spent quite a number of hours on, at that point in between leaving and not leaving, and that in itself created some tensions in my pranic body that took many, many years to work out. I, that was the first time I took LSD. I took LSD, I don't know, 100, 150 times, I don't know how many times. It didn't benefit me by necessarily making things go any further. And that was the only thing I knew of at that time in the 60s in Oklahoma that I could use to expose me to an environment that, that I had never knew existed before. Right. All I knew was I had to get more of that. <laughs> And uh, I wasn't going to do that where I was, so I, I can be methodical when I'm in the mood. So I figured out a way to graduate from college after two years, and then I went to Africa, and I crossed Africa overland from the west coast to the east coast, and then I got this opportunity to go on an ethnographic expedition, and then for a variety of reasons, I they was invited to join the tribe, and I joined the tribe. And even though I've never been back to the tribe, and even though the, you know, the main reason that they were doing this initiation was so it could be filmed by the ethnographers, there was something that happened in that initiation. I can still feel Africa in my organism. Mm. I mean, you know, because Africa is a real, it's a place of great reality of a certain level. And then I realized, the, whoa, there's something, and I met a bunch of witch doctors, and I got cured of some severe disease, eat well before that, in Ivory Coast from a witch doctor. And I thought, I've got, I don't know what this stuff is, but I've got to go further. And while I was recuperating in Ivory Coast, I read Autobiography of a Yogi. And I thought, whoa, I don't know what this yoga stuff is, but it, I should check it out. Flew to England, crossed overland to India, got robbed in India, hated the place, went to Nepal, loved the place. Then I heard that Dalai Lama was going to give a, uh, some teachings in uh, Bodhagaya in India. And I had heard of the Dalai Lama and I had heard of Buddhism, but not, they didn't mean anything to me per se, but everybody else was going. So I thought, okay, I'll go too. 1974, January. So. I and 500,000 Tibetans and a bunch of other people landed in Bodhgaya. And that really blew my mind. His Holiness is for sure, but Bilgo Kense Rinpoche. I don't know, there was something about, I mean, he was a very large man, but there was just something about him. I just saw him and I thought, I don't know what, I don't know what he's got and I don't know how he got it, but I gotta have some of that myself. Because I could feel, because it was not a matter of thinking at all, because I had really had not studied any of that. But it was a matter of the, the prana, the kundalini in my organism, aligning with that and then, and then and being able to perceive, not intellectually, but being able to perceive at an intuitive, at a, you know, a, a gut level, that, that this was the direction to go in. I ended up in Bombay. I met some people outside a restaurant who introduced me to various people who got me into the Ayurvedic college. After, and a year and a half later, I met Vimalananda. So it was, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that there was this energy that was in me that I had to do something good with and try to hold it together while I was doing it. And of course, 
in between, I got in a couple of car accidents and spent four hours in jail once and overnight in jail another time. And and various things happened, but all in the context of I knew what it was. This energy had started to direct what I was going to do. So back at that time, no, it didn't. It didn't manifest in me as a bunch of kriyas or, or heat or whatever. It manifested in a different way. It was completely transformative, but not transformative in a positive way until I got an idea of how to make it positive. And that took a few years. So was that an illusion? Well, yeah, in a sense, it was an illusion because it was something that I was experiencing that I would not have been able to uh, first, I couldn't explain to anybody, but I certainly wouldn't have per se believed that any of what I was doing was spiritual. But it had this energy had taken over and was moving me in the direction of where clearly I end, needed to end up without knowing how I was going to get there. So you're saying that um, perhaps your LSD use actually awakened Kundalini and that once awakened, that energy began to direct the course of your life in ways that probably your peers back in Oklahoma couldn't have imagined. You could never have imagined what happened. And one thing just kept leading to the next. But you're kind of accrediting awakened Kundalini with, with this uh, orchestration of your destiny. This, this intelligence woke up within you, which began to um, direct the course of events in mysterious and ultimately beneficial ways. And, and I think it's important at this point to draw a distinction. And that distinction would be between, if you like, the anna, the physical kundalini, the pranic kundalini, and the mental kundalini. Because they're all, you know, you're, you're, there's self-definition happening at all these different levels. So not only those three, but you know, since there are even more levels, there's seven sheaths, and then there's the unmanifest. Would you say that Kundalini, as as we have our existence at all those levels, Kundalini does and has its kind of manifestation and functioning at, at every different level? Absolutely, because if you are existing at any level, the only reason you're existing at that level is because you are identifying as there's a part of you identifying as being at that level. Mm -hmm. That, which we call ahankara. If there's ahankara and kundalini are the same thing. The only difference is one is directed towards greater manifestation in the externalized multiplicity of the duality of the physical world. And the other is it's directed in the opposite direction. Hmm. There's the pravritti marga, extending outwards in all directions, and the nivritti marga, bringing back in. Visarga, Adana, whatever you want to call it. There's that continuous expansion and contraction, externalization, internalization, and that happens at every level. So Kundalini then is, is responsible both for accreting and preserving our, our individual identity and at, uh, at the same time for uh, dissolving it in a way. But as we discussed earlier, its dissolution is not its destruction. It's, it dissolves the, the sort of binding influence of it so that we, we grow to realize that we are not only that, but we are, we are both kind of the, the universal and the individual and can live the two in an integrated way. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. So I would propose that anytime that your awareness becomes disconnected from your individuality and becomes connected to the cosmic or the 
ultimate or whatever you want to call it, to the extent that your awareness is able to connect to that reality, to that extent, it is Kundalini that is awake, that is connected to that reality. So even without, and, and, and here is why, why it's not necessarily a good idea to call it Kundalini per se, because the word has accumulated some other associations. But I was extraordinarily fortunate, even though I was born in the West, in the United States, I was fortunate to be born to parents who were Christians in the real sense of that term. And I personally have had a personal connection to Jesus Christ since I was very young. Hmm. And not an intellectual one, and not an emotional one per se, but one that is at some other more gut level kind of thing. And as that developed, and to the extent that it had developed by the time I took LSD, I had already established a connection to the non-physical world in a positive way. I mean, some people get it connected in a negative way. They're very young, they're taken over by, you know, a, a, a disembodied human, and that becomes part of their reality from a very young age. Thank God that didn't happen to me. Thank God instead, I was able to experience to a very small degree, no doubt, but the, the reality of Jesus Christ. And to me, that was the environment in which the awakening of the prana kundalini, just for the purpose of coming up with some classification, you know, we have the mental kundalini where you, now you're seeing gods and goddesses and the universe is being created and destroyed and so on because that's what the mind is all about. It's about emotions, it's about aware, uh, it's, uh, visualizations, it's about memories. You're getting the memories of your you know, previous lifetimes and you're getting the memories of your previous ancestors and so on. But the, the prana kundalini is the kundalini that is in fact wants to get into the central channel and move properly. So what's happening with the people who uh, you know, as my mentor used to say, there's two basic ways to develop spiritually. There's the right nostril and the left nostril. The right nostril is the, the, the sun, the left nostril is the moon. The right nostril is jnana, the left nostril is bhakti. Eventually, you have to have both of them because that's the only way you're going to get into the central channel. But it may be in the beginning that if your right nostril gets activated, that you are going to burn and that may not be a lot of fun, but if the if if you've awakened enough energy that is moving in your body, and your body doesn't know what to, your body is thinking, oh my, God, OMG, gonna, <laughs> you know, WTF, what do I do now? It's going to stick it wherever it can. Hmm. It's just like what happens if you eat a lot of crap and you have toxins in your body. Your body can't have the toxins circulating around. It's got to go somewhere. So your your body can't have all of your cells suddenly waking up and becoming aware of the supreme reality uh, it, because it would explode. So it has to it has to hold on to some of that prana somehow. So now you grab hold of the tiger. Now you're on the roller coaster. What are you going to do? Well, the body does whatever it can do. So for some people, it will go into the right nostril and you'll start to burn up. For some people, go in the left nostril. You'll get cold. You'll get constricted. You'll get frightened, you'll get terrorized, you'll grab hold of what some concept that you can use to act as a base for yourself. Maybe you'll never move. I've seen many uh, people who uh, had, uh, you know, partial kundalini awakenings who get stuck here 
and they never let go. They are always there. They can still, you know, they still make some progress, but there's always this thing that they're holding on to because that was the only thing that kept them from completely uh, fl flying to pieces when they were going through that initial awakening. That initial awakening is when it, when it is happening in the pranic body. If you have, I mean, if I, if I had it all to do over with, I would have started doing yoga at age uh, one month and I would have been uh, doing it so that I had very good control over my prana so that when this started, I would be able to circulate the prana, make sure that I had enough apana moving downwards to keep myself stable, and then use the rest of it to connect to whatever it is I need to connect to. And you probably would have skipped the LSD altogether. Yeah, there would have been no, no need, no particular use for that. Right. Well, what you've just been saying um, points to several things in the notes I took. One is that you mentioned that Kundalini must awaken in a slow and controlled way practice and preparation, you have to sort of build a, a foundation. Like you say, you would have started yoga one month and you would have built a, a strong physiological foundation for its awakening. And maybe we can also refer to something else you wrote, which is that Kundalini, without perhaps that necessary preparation, Kundalini can awaken in such a way that it inflates and empowers limitations. So one may end up with an insatiable hunger for sex or food um, or huge ego inflation or deflation. And um, you, you wrote of uh, half-baked aspirants inflated with the power and charisma of Kundalini becoming gurus. Well, let's suppose that the, the, the Kundalini is awakening, the prana is moving now. And the prana is trying to get into that very, those very, 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 very subtle spaces where it can activate the real, the seeds of those chakras. Mm -hmm. Are you referring to the Shushumna here? Sushumna. You know, they claim that Sushumna has three different levels to it. Varnini, uh -huh. Chitinini, and Sushumna. Okay. The point is that getting your prana to move in Sushumna is something that if you work without too much effort, you can, you can do. I mean, it's, you know, it's a yogic thing. Mm -hmm. But just because it's moving in Sushumna does not mean anything other than it's moving in Sushumna. It has to then become much more subtle before it can really get to the level of where the chakras are. Because the level of the chakras are, it's, that's at the level, I mean, this is a, it's the level of where the five elements are. And the five elements are what make up the fabric of our external reality. So when you start being able to connect to those five elements directly, it's very important that you be nice and stable and calm so that you don't really do some damage to yourself. That's why they're so subtle and that's why it takes so much attention and subtlety of your awareness to get down to them. So what may happen is the Kundalini is now moving and she wants to move up and she definitely wants to find her way to the supreme reality. But maybe you have a tendency to be very fond of food. And so it's not a chakra in the sense of what the chakra is really supposed to do, but it is an energy center in your pranic body at your gut, at you know, at the solar plexus. And so energy is flowing into there and then that energy if you allow it, externalizes itself further into the physical body. And then all of a sudden, that aspect of your physical body is getting tremendous amounts of prawn in it. And that will make it want to do whatever it normally do, whatever it normally does, but ever so much more so. And then 
you are still a person who is limited from the perspective of being able to see things from a nice wide perspective. And so you think, well, I'm hungry, I've got to eat. And then you eat some more. And then, of course, the more you eat, the more you're hungry for. And then you eat some more. And then there you are. And so, that could happen anywhere. That could happen from the talking point of view. And how many, you know, so-called gurus have we seen in this country and in India, et cetera, who absolutely are able to perceive a certain quality and a certain degree of reality, but then do not remember that you have to continuously be refining and dissolving your limitations, the blind spots that you have, so that they are not being reinforced by your organism for the purpose of maintaining a sense of stability to permit it to continue to exist while Kundalini is trying to dissolve it. Interesting. That was a real interesting point you just made. Um, it's insidious. There's this sort of subtle, tricky tendency, which usually flies totally beneath our radar, to reinforce, as you just said, to buttress uh, structures of the individuality of the ego and to, to prevent its dissolution, to prevent the takeover of unbounded awareness. And uh, it's, it's so tricky. I mean, that's, that's what they say Maya is, that, uh, you know, that's, oh, there's so many interesting stories in the Vedic literature about Maya yeah. tripping people up. <laughs> and Narada, who is, uh, you know, a celestial musician, wanders from universe to universe as the devotee of Lord Vishnu. Oh, is this a story about the water? Yeah, I think so. Great story. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it's, it's you know, Narada went to Vishnu and said, uh, please show me your Maya. And Vishnu said, okay, go meditate over there. And he started meditating over there. He went to the river and then there was a beautiful woman and suddenly he was overtaken by her and they married and they had children and then there was a flood and everything was gone and he was miserable. And suddenly he saw Vishnu again and Vishnu said, I need to see Maya. <laughs> I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was nodded. And if that can happen to him, why not? what can happen to you and me? What about poor old Moses? Moses, this was not an ordinary person. Moses, who could, you know, saw God from the back. At the last moment, he had gotten the Israelites, they had come out of Egypt, they had survived Pharaoh, it's the plagues, etc. And just at the moment, when they were about to enter the Promised Land, God said to him, speak to the rock over there, and it will give you water. But because of Saturn, or because of his karmas, or because God wanted it that way, or who knows what, he didn't speak to the rock, he hit it with his staff. Mm. And the water came out, and then God said, oh my goodness, Moses, what have you done? Now, as a result of this, you can't go to the promised land, which you've been trying to do for the past umpteen years. Everybody else will go, and you're going to have to stay here. Oops. So, if it can happen to these people, yeah. it's happening to you and me all the time. I've seen it in my own life. I can't tell you how many times because it's depressing to think about it. But the only answer is you have to keep refining. You have to keep getting up every day. You have to keep realizing that that ignorance is part of the is the major price that you pay for being able to exist as a human being. And you just have to keep refining. And you're not going to keep refining if you think that there's no more, nothing more to refine. If you think you're not you, going to keep refining if you think you're already refined. Yeah, if you think you're done, and that's actually a key 
element in these interviews, usually towards the end, I always ask the person, well, you know, what's the next horizon for you now? Where do you see it going from here? And most people have some sense that there's going to continue to be refinement, but some people think, you know, like it's a dumb question. How, how, how could there be anything more? All there is is this, and the, the whole notion of further. In fact, there are some fairly predominant spiritual circles these days who regard the whole notion of progress and levels of development and all that as utter BS. They, they feel that it's just a concession to duality and that it's, it's just going to hang you up to forever following the carrot and, and not, not sort of realizing that you are that now. Just as you're saying that, there was another earthquake. Oh, okay. So what I have to say... There's so, no real earthquake, of course. There's, there's no real earthquake. There's no earth. There's no earth, <laughs> and it's all ultimately an illusion. So if that's the case, I will gladly watch while you sit in the middle of, you know, the, the Swarovski store and pieces of crystal fall on top of your head, and you maintain your awareness. Mm. And please, if you... Yes, I agree. Gutter water is the, absolutely the same as water. And if you can live on dog shit, go right ahead and do that. Yeah. But I, have, I, I need to see you doing that in order to be convinced, because otherwise I'm not convinced. This, I think, is one of the... It's sad, but it's also, you know, it also, I think, is something that probably was at least to some degree uh, um, accelerated by the, uh, by the Victorians when they were in India. The concept of... Vedanta. Now, Vedanta is a very noble concept, but nobody, nobody seems to pay attention to the fact that it is Veda ka anta. Anta means the end, the end of the Vedic process. Nobody thinks very much. I mean, some people do, but I mean, the people who are talking this way are not perhaps aware of the fact that if you wanted to study the Veda. The Veda was not written down for thousands of years. The Veda was oral. That means you had to sit for three hours a day for 12 years reciting the Veda. At the end of that time, pranayama would have become perfected in you. Because you can't sit, I've done it before, you can't sit reciting for three hours without having the prana <clears throat> in your body be nice and aligned. Only at the point that the prana is well aligned only after you've recited all these mantras and had all kinds of experiences we expect as a result of reciting these mantras with various ethereal beings, only then are you going to be in a position to be able to say, now I can see that beyond even this, there is something that can't even be imagined, much less spoken of. I was reading the Isha Upanishad just the other day, and it said, those who follow Tamas go into a very dark place. But even that place is not as dark as the place that, it, uh, that is um, uh, attained by those who follow the path of knowledge. I remember that verse. Yeah. And Vimalananda used to say that the worst ahankara, the worst egoism of all, is the egoism of knowledge. And that's knowledge uh, because you have this much knowledge and you think you have this much knowledge. Little knowledge is a dangerous thing. A little knowledge is a terrifically dangerous thing. Yeah. So what you're saying is there's nothing inherently wrong with knowledge, but um, 
Well, there's a Tibetan proverb that I often quote, which is, don't mistake understanding for realization. And yes. don't, don't mistake realization for liberation. And I get the sense, I, I harp on this too much probably, that there are a lot of people who become aware of this whole you know, Advaita thing, uh, non-duality and so on, and it, it resonates with them deeply and intuitively, and they mistake that knowledge that, that begins to dawn as the actual experience to which these sages and scriptures refer. But it could, you know, it, it's, it's, well, you said in the thing that I wrote, uh, that, you, that you wrote, that what many consider the culmination of their practices may be just the beginning. So there are a lot of people who seem to think they're finished who are probably just starting out in the big picture of things. And, and I, in no way do I suggest that the experience that they have is not real. Right. But it's one thing to have that experience and be in that space, and it's an, another thing to be able to integrate that into your daily life. Otherwise, it's, okay, it's not alcohol, now it's the experience. Mm -hmm. if, the experience if you're drinking the experience, that's one thing. It's useful because the experience is an interface between you as a manifested thing and the unmanifest. It's a snapshot of where you are at that moment. But it's only a snapshot. It's only it's a, of a process that is ongoing. So if you don't digest that and understand that it, it is nothing more than an indication of how that relationship, because it's a relationship. Everything in life is a relationship. In fact, I read something recently that suggests that from a mathematical point of view, the entire universe is nothing but in mathematics, and it's nothing. Mathematics is nothing but relationship. Forget the particles and forget the waves and everything. It's just relationships among, as far as we're concerned, from you know, consciousness. Consciousness. Consciousness interacting with itself in different ways. So, but but the fact is that as an individual human being you have certain constraints that mean that you are not going to be able to experience the reality of the Supreme 24 hours a day, seven days a week, without dissolving. So you're, you're going to have to have some greasiness mm -hmm. on your palm or on your nose or somewhere. You're going to have to have some interface that is going to permit you, even if you're driving your organism from way up here in the sky, there still has to be a connection between you and the organism, and that's your Achilles heel. Yeah, and to a great extent, it's a matter of integration and stabilization. I, I think there are people who, uh, I think I know some, who, for whom the experience of whatever phrase you just used, the ultimate, the supreme, is largely predominant 24-7, but it's like a zoom lens, which, you know, if they're in, in traffic and they have to, you know, it's like it's going to reside in the background a little bit because they have to deal with the, the situation at hand. But it doesn't take long for it to zoom forth again once it's practical for it to do so. And you mentioned Christ earlier, you know, getting crucified and kind of losing it on the cross for a bit. You know, I always wonder about people who say they're awakened, they're enlightened. How well would this hold up under crucifixion? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds a little morbid, yeah. it sounds, it sounds a little gruesome, but, you know, to what degree is it actually stabilized under the most severe possible conditions? Uh, I uh, have been to Italy many times, and I've been to Assisi many times, and um, several times to La Verna, which is where St. Francis received the 
stigmata. Hmm. I mean, as far as misery goes, he went out of his way to make his life miserable and difficult <laughs> and so on. Especially in La Verna, in Assisi for sure, but especially in La Verna, there's just a quality that you can't help but feel of, of how despite all of this of this tremendous difficulty he was going through, how open he was to that reality. Mm -hmm. And Guru Arjandev, the fifth guru of the Sikhs, who the Emperor Jahangir was misled by Guru Arjandev's own brother, sadly, who, who said he was a traitor, and Jahangir, who had a tendency to act before thinking, uh, since he was an overuser of wine and opium, sentenced him to be <clears throat> boiled alive or burned in sand or something like that. And um, the disciples had to watch. And the disciples, of course, were very miserable because the guru was quite miserable. And one said, Guruji, just say the word and I will use all of my shakti and I will burn down the city of Lahore, where we are now. And no matter the fact that he was miserable, Guru Arjandev had to smile because of how cute the disciple was. And he said, my dear, you're my disciple. Do you think that if you can do that, that I could not do that myself? Do you think I couldn't have escaped somehow? No, I did this because this was the desire of reality. And because reality is so extraordinarily sweet, I, I just couldn't turn away from it. I had to do it, no matter what the cost was to me. Interesting. So, so yes, I think that, you know, I'm not at that state. I can absolutely... I thank God on a daily basis that I don't have to do something like this. I may have my own difficulties, and I, as does everyone else, but at least they're difficulties that I personally can go through. Yeah. I don't mind having difficulties. I just, my, you know, my prayer is, please let me be able to survive them. <laughs> well, they say God never gives you more than you can handle. And I think that's probably true. Yeah. As long as you're willing to handle it. Yeah. And as long as you're aware that you have to handle it, which I fear is what goes on with some of these people who and you know as you mentioned that people who get to a certain stage there is a natural desire on the part of the organism body mind and spirit to be stable so if you find a place where you really feel stable and you're able to connect to the supreme reality on a regular basis it's very easy to come to the conclusion that this yeah, that done. you've reached the, that you're done yeah I, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to interview a woman who had some sort of come to that conclusion. She'd, her name is Prajnaginti, and she'd been on this spiritual path, and she was very easily, you know, absorbed in samadhi and in a real nice place all the time. And then she gave birth to premature twins, and you know, one of both of whom were blind and severely brain damaged and handicapped. And her life turned into this incredible challenge, which brought her to the brink of suicide. But then she has somehow—I haven't finished learning all about her—but she somehow managed to digest all this and, and incorporate it and, and learn the spiritual lessons from it and kind of integrate it in, in, and, and wouldn't actually trade it for anything now because it was, it was something that God gave her which she could barely handle but managed to handle and turned out to be an evolutionary opportunity. Wow. I salute her. Yeah. We talked about you know fall, yogis falling, and we didn't use that terminology. But people getting egos getting inflated, and people feeling they're done, and you know becoming 
half-baked gurus and all that. What would be the safeguard against that? Um, I mean, having a guru oneself who can tell you you're not done, that would be one, I suppose. Or That's you know, the best way. Yeah, having a good measure of humility uh, somehow, even if you don't have a guru, so, so as to sort of keep yourself in check, perhaps? Or is that perhaps like trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you really do need uh, an external guide who can keep you, uh, keep you going? Um, my personal opinion and the opinion of my mentor was that it is very desirable to have an external guide because it, the same way with the mirror, the same way with, you know, the old saying, the doctor who has himself, uh, the doctor who treats himself has a fool for a patient because you don't have that perspective. It's the same reason why a good doctor will rarely want to, in a crisis, treat his his daughter or something, yeah. Yeah. And if you can find a human guru, this is a great thing. But maybe that doesn't happen. Lord Shiva is a handy guru. If you, you know, they're, they're, the Jesus is a good guru. There are gurus out there. But that, you know, could just, that could just be your imagination. There are people who would say they wouldn't use the word guru, but they would say that Jesus is their guru and they're handling rattlesnakes to prove it, you know. And so you can delude you, yourself. You can delude yourself even if you have a good guru. Yeah, and true. It, and it's happened on many occasions. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have to have a guru, there's the famous example of Dattatreya, who, okay, is not called Dattatreya in the Srimad Bhagavatam, but is called the Avaduta. And mm -hmm. Dattatreya is identified with an Avaduta. And he talks about the fact that he had 24 gurus and none of them were ever aware that he was there was that they were acting as gurus to him he saw what was going on in their lives he took that and he and he learned from it and he transformed himself of course he was the tatre he was one out of he was yeah. one so far there's been one the tatre there was that story in the mahabharata where Arjuna's rival for supremacy and archery uh, was rejected by their guru because the guru had promised Arjuna that he would, you know, make him the best archer. So the guy went off in the forest and built a little model of a uh, statue of the guru and worshipped that and became the best archer in, until the guru caught on to it and made him cut yes. his thumb off. But Exactly. <laughs> yes, Ekalavya, his name was... Right, Ekalavya. right. But that worked for him. I get two lessons from that story. Number one is, if you are focused as, as Ekalavya was, if you were really focused and if you were not cheating your awareness and if you are projecting onto something that quality of guruness, and you're not trying to say, oh yes, Guruji, oh, I can have a lasagna today, oh, okay. I have been, the guru has transmitted to me that yes, I may, uh, that you have become my consort and you know. Yeah, yeah. If you don't do that, then even that projection can act as, can be a guru. And of course, the other useful thing to do is to remember that, like in the Dronacharya's case, Dronacharya was, this, the, was the weapons guru. If someone comes to you and has gone through that process and has actually become a better archer than your student, and you were his guru, even though you were his never his guru, you were his guru. And having you chop off, you know, making him chop off his thumb is a karma that you personally are going to have to pay. And he did. And he had to pay for that when he believed that his son Ashwatthama was dead during the war, after which he allowed himself to be killed. Interesting. I forgot that that was the resolution of that story because it always yeah. bothered me that he made uh, Eka, Ekalavya. Ekalavya cut his thumb off. I thought, wow, what a, what a creep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, oh, he, it, Mahabharata was 
as has been said very clearly, you know, that the Ramayana, the India has two epics. The Ramayana is all about Rama believing that he really had a good idea of what his dharma was and trying to follow it. The Mahabharata is, nobody knows what their dharma is. Everybody has some, everybody in that book has some unsolvable question of which dharma to follow. Mm. And that's, and it was, you know, distilled down into the Bhagavad Gita. Arjuna says, my dharma to my family and to my allies and to you says I should go out there and murder my guru and my grandfather. And the dharma that is spoken of elsewhere says murdering your guru is the, ab the there's no, the worst there's sin. no karma worse than that. Yeah. How can I even come to grips with this? And Krishna had to show him his universal form before Arjuna could, could actually realize that he can keep both of those things in his awareness at the same time, even though it's very difficult, which is eventually what you've got to do with Kundalini. It has to be able to keep both of those realities, the reality of the, infin the infinite and the reality of zero. It has to be able to keep both of them aligned with one another all the time without cognitive dissonance taking over. And that is probably the key. I mean, verse chapter 2, verse 48, Yogastha Kuru Karmani, if you get established in yoga, in being, in the absolute, in, in the universal consciousness, then perform action, yes. then you will automatically reconcile all these polarities and paradoxes and irreconcilable dharmic conflicts that the intellect, human intellect, simply can't figure out because karma is unfathomable. Exactly. That's yeah. what yoga really is. It's joining together two things that are fundamentally identical, but currently in our current, in, in the environment in which we live, are, are, are polar opposites. Yeah. So instead of allowing them to polarize out here and be apart from one another, bringing them to a, a place where at the very least they are joined by, by a point. So at least there's, it's, it's like a placenta. The placenta, half of it is created from the mother, half of it is created from the child. And nutrients go into the child, wastes come out from the child into the mother. But you know, the two, the two halves of the placenta, they are two different organisms. But there is a, an ability that, that blood can shift and nutrients can shift between those two. Hmm. Yeah, we started out this conversation talking about polarities and, um, you know, their political polarities. There's, and then there's the pro-gun and the anti-gun and the pro-abortion, the anti-abortion. And there's so many polarities that are kind of tearing our society apart, and uh, which seem irreconcilable on, the, on their own level. There's no very little common ground or communication going on. But the way I see it, and I think you kind of alluded to this a couple hours ago in our conversation, um, that with a, an upwelling or an infusion of divine consciousness from the most subtle level into society, I think perhaps we'll see that mysteriously uh, solutions are found which manage to reconcile and harmonize these polarities and we'll be able to progress as a society and survive as one. I agree and that is certainly my hope because, um, I mean, that's the way that we've survived so far. Somehow or another, there has always been some sort of compromise has been reached. Mm -hmm. uh, during the Civil War, it required an extreme 
level of conflict before that compromise can be, could be reached. And it was quite imperfect because then there was reconstruction and then there was Jim Crow and resegregation. And ironically, the government, federal government was resegregated by Woodrow Wilson, the very man who was going out of his way to talk about getting rid of war in the League of Nations. So very easily you can have in the same person, Teddy Roosevelt, who busted all of the, you know, the Gilded Age trusts, but at the same time was a big game hunter and came, you know, slaughtered animals uh, freely. But established the national park system. And established the national park system. So Friend of John Muir. You, you have, you, you can very easily have two very different sides to someone as reflected in having two very different sides to what is the situation in the country. I don't want to see abortion available on every street corner. No, of course not. But I also don't want to have women going into back alleys and, and dying miserable deaths as a result of, you know, botched uh, procedures. Right. And I certainly uh, am fine with my uh, relatives going out and, and shooting uh, deer, which are too many nowadays, and feral pigs, which don't belong there. But I don't think that we need to have people taking guns into churches and colleges and airports. And right. I don't think that's necessary. Yeah. We have plenty of adequate fire and, you know. And that's actually the, what, you know, if we, if we infuse uh, a more sort of enlightened consciousness into the equation, into the situation, then, then I think the, the, the tendency to polarize diminishes, the tendency to uh, rigidly adhere to one end of the spectrum without appreciation for the other, as you're expressing. I mean, you're an example of someone who is saying, yeah, I can see both sides and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. They can both be incorporated into a larger perspective. So this, this whole enlightenment business actually, I think, has practical implications for the mundane issues that preoccupy our society and offers uh, solutions to a lot of these destructive conflicts that, uh, you know, for instance, I mean, take the environmental thing. There does, is global warming real? Is it not real? There's the people who, both camps are divided. Of course, the scientists are on the side of it being real, but a solution which is holistic is, let's, let's not worry about whether it's real or not. Let's progress and come up with technologies that would be beneficial regardless of whether global warming is man-made, you know, and sell them to China and it can be an economic advantage and it won't cost us jobs, it'll create jobs, you know, that kind of thing. We know that there is more CO2 than has been in the atmosphere for what, hundreds of thousands of years? Millions, 35 million. Whether or not this is going to cause global warming or global cooling, it's not normal. It, right. And it is not going to have a good effect. We don't, may not know what the effect is, but we can be very sure. Anytime, I mean, this is basic science. Anytime you take a system that ha was at equilibrium and you suddenly add something else to it, it's not going to be at equilibrium anymore. And especially because there are way too many humans that more than the uh, effective carrying capacity of our planet within the context of there being health for all the other ecosystems everywhere. We ha it's our responsibility to be all the more attentive to minimizing as best we can our footprint, our impact on all levels of our existence. Yeah, and, uh, and the point I keep coming back to in my own thinking is that the best way for us to do that is for 
you know, higher consciousness for enlightenment, whatever terms we want to use, to become more prevalent in the world, which is part of my motivation for doing this show. As Einstein said, you don't solve a problem at the same level of consciousness at which it was created. You know, you have to sort of go to a new level of consciousness. Right. And so this is kind of like the principle of second element. You don't get rid of the darkness in the room by investigating it or analyzing it or arguing over it. You, you get rid of it by bringing in a second element, light, and then darkness is found to just sort of disappear. So that second element, I think, the, the, and, and this ties back to the whole Kundalini discussion, the, the sustenance, the essence, the energy which animates everything is that divine energy. And perhaps all the, the, the difficulties we see in the world are due to uh, insufficient uh, flow of it, insufficient supply of it. And that if it can be enlivened in the, in the world, uh, it will enrich the world and, and help all these problems to dissipate, just as the dullness and deadness of individual life is, is dissipated by an enlivenment of it within the individual. I agree entirely. And Sadly, uh, I think a big reason why there is an impediment to progress in this direction is the fact that so many scientists are so such dedicated materialists. Yeah. And I mean, this is the basic difference between Indian science and modern science. Indi modern science believes that everything is based in matter and by some process of deus ex machina, consciousness arose. Whereas Indian science believes, and in fact, consciousness is the base, and matter has, has emerged from consciousness becoming progressively more opaque to itself. Mm -hmm. I don't in any way deny the reality of matter, but I, I, I'm, I'm amazed often when I read or hear well-trained scientists becoming so ridiculously vehement about the impossibility of consciousness existing outside of protoplasm. How can they possibly know? It's so unscientific. I know, uh, me too, and that's a topic for a whole nother, whole nother discussion. And some of the people I interview, you know, we have gone into that to some extent. Um, in fact, you might, I mentioned to you off before we started this interview, the Science and Non-Duality Conference out in California. You might enjoy that. It's a whole bunch of spiritual people and a whole bunch of scientists getting together and uh, discussing issues just such as that. And uh, probably better wrap it up. It seems like you and I could go on all day just taking little seed thoughts and expanding upon them. But this has been great. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything that is in your mind or that you'd like to throw out before we, we finish? Uh, anything we haven't covered? Um, I think the only thing I would like to uh, say to people like your friend who went through a Kundalini experience and is now asking herself whether it was complete, you know, illusion. Delusion, yeah. I would say, and, and to anybody who is going through any kind of kundalini experience, the most, and this is what I tell to pretty much everybody all day long, especially nowadays, and I spent a long time talking about it to a couple of people in the house here last night. The most important thing in life, in my opinion, especially nowadays, is stay calm. You can freak out if you want to when no crisis is occurring, but when there is a crisis, like a potential earthquake where maybe the house is going to fall in on top of you, God forbid. But if that happens, you have to be calm because that's the only way you're going to survive. You have to know where to position yourself or at least have a reasonable expectation. Mm -hmm. You have to know when to run and when to hide and when not to do that. And you're only going to be able to do that if you're able to 
maintain a certain amount of awareness of what's going on outside and an understanding of how you might be able to interact with what's going on outside. And that especially is important when your organism is now redefining itself. Mm -hmm. So don't come to, don't jump to conclusions, don't start assuming anything, especially when this energy is activated. What you assume has a much greater potential to actually manifest in some way, mm. to become concrete. So don't just keep coming back to whatever it is that you have faith in. And uh, as a, a friend of mine in India is fond of saying, your real guru is the last face that you would see as you were drowning. The last thing before you're going down for the third time. So the last, the, the thing that is most dear to you is what's going to come to you at that moment. Whatever that is, grab hold of that because that's the thing that is going to be able to keep all of your prana and all of your organism and all of your energy and everything focused as you proceed through this transformational experience. Well, they say the last thought at the time of death determines your next birth. And uh, I remember some funny... And, and mm? that's, the, that's the same thing here. The, the thoughts that you are having, because this is a kind of a death and rebirth experience. So that thought that you have as you're, as you're dying to your previous self is going to determine substantially how you're reborn to your new self, even though it happens to be in the same physical body. Yeah, although the, the last thought at the time of death isn't necessarily edifying. I, I remember this funny movie with Alan Arkin and Peter Falk, I forget the name of it, but they were before a firing squad. And, you know, one of the guys was saying, I didn't have enough sex, you know. <laughs> and uh, so wouldn't you say that the real anchor that we need to take refuge in is the self, the absolute. You know, that's, that's why Krishna was able to smile on the battlefield because he was that ultimate reality and, and therefore the drama unfolding before him couldn't um, overthrow him, couldn't overshadow him. It's true, but of course he was Krishna and his ability, he was in that ultimate reality a lot of the time. <clears throat> Which is why my mentor used to say that until you get to a, a state of, you know, similar elevation, having a form and a name that you can apply to, whether it's Krishna or Jesus or the giant cosmic mulberry, because, I mean, that's what Kundalini has been educated to identify with the five elements that make up your body. Mm -hmm. And those five elements in the physical organism are earth, water, fire, air, and space. Those five elements in the, in the subtle body are smell, taste, touch, sight, form, and sound. Mm -hmm. So she's going to be looking for those five things, those five sense things, as long as she is habituated, as long as she has been conditioned to be within those five things. So while you're still in that, in, in that limitation of perception, it's often most useful to have something that is connected to at least one of them, mm -hmm. a name or a form, like a mantra or something. A mantra or something that you're visualizing, the okay. face of God, a mask uh -huh. of God. Something that you can grab hold onto until your awareness is sufficiently stabilized in that expansive way that you can just focus on that expansive thing. Right, until that, till that, yeah. And, even the, and then it won't be a, a matter of willful focusing. It'll just be that you are that and you don't have to, you know, nothing can shake it. Exactly.
Yeah. Are you aware of this uh, Kundalini Care Institute in Tennessee, Joan Harrigan? And a number of my friends have gone there uh, and you know, say that they've had great results in terms of Kundalini, which was blocked or misdirected, being unblocked or redirected. Um, I have, in fact, a friend of mine went there, I mean, must be 15, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. and also reported very good results. I haven't been there myself, but, um, and, and I, so, you know, it's only hearsay, but I've heard, I heard good things back then, and since you can report good things, I, I certainly think. Yeah, um, haven't been there myself, but for, uh, half a dozen friends have gone and really, you know, said good things about it. So uh, just throwing that out in case there's yeah. anybody listening to this who is having kind of Kundalini problems, they might want to look that up. The Kundalini Research Institute. I think it's called something like that. Yeah, it's in Tennessee someplace. In Tennessee. Right. Yeah. That's where it was 20 years ago. Okay. So you've written about a dozen books. I guess uh, you've listed several on that you sent me. So I guess those are the ones I'll list on my website. Ahura books, one, two, and three, The Greatness of Saturn, A Therapeutic Myth. Be sure to have, send me whatever, if those are not them, be sure to send me whatever books you feel would be most uh, interesting and relevant to listeners of this uh, show and uh, so that they can check them out if they want to read more. Probably those, but of course they can just go to the books section on my website. Okay, and sure. Find out the other ones too. But but those probably deal most specifically with what we've been talking about. Okay, good. Yeah, and of course you have expertise in Jyotish and yoga and Tantra and Ayurveda and all this other stuff. So you're quite a Renaissance man. You really covered it all. Well, the more that I learn, the more that I realize just how oh, ignorant I really am, which yeah. is a great blessing. That is a good too. thing, yeah. Good to know your limitations. All right, well, thanks. Let me make some concluding remarks. I've been speaking with Robert Svoboda, and this interview is part of an ongoing series. There are about 225 of them in the can so far. I do a new one each week. Next week will be Sharon Landreth, whom I interviewed a couple of years ago. I'm going on a retreat with her and interviewing her in person. They can all be found at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, where you'll find the alphabetical index, a chronological index. We're also working on a geographical index. If somebody's in a particular area, they want to find a teacher nearby. And there will also be a categorical index that someone has volunteered to develop. So all that. There is a discussion group there that crops up around each interview. You'll see a link to it on Robert's page. And there is a link to an audio podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes and just listen to the audio. There's a donate button. Uh, Batgap is a 501c3, and we appreciate your support. And there's a place to be sign up to be notified of new interviews. Each time one is posted, you'll see a tab for that. Join our mailing list or something. So feel free to sign up to be notified. So that's about it. So thank you for listening or watching. Thank you again, Robert. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And um, we'll see you all next week.